The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when you're born beautiful? The type of beautiful that captivates the eye of all that beholds you. Driving all bystanders to fervent heights of lust, devotion, and longful necrophilia. Would you stay humble in the wake of such ardent admiration? Or would you succumb to your own inner demons, transforming into a rampant, raging, narcissistic bitch until the other models have no choice but to do what they have never done before and eat something? Well, let's find out. Because today we are ravenously consuming Nick Reffin's 2016 controversial art house film, The Neon Demon. So sit back, pull out some mirrors, and hang on to your irises as we stare into the reflective reels of Refn's savage and synthetic dream of being pretty and 16. Brought to you by the smooth esophageal descent of a human eyeball, the unapologetic celebration of narcissism, meat puppet Keanu Reeves playing the ninth grade, badass hungry bitches, and vampires. Yeah, there are vampires in this, sort of, mostly. And of course, our safe word today is altruism, Anything to add, Benji? Nothing to add, just looking in a mirror, loving life, and oh god, they're eating me! Nobody finds you enough competition to eat you. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space! (laughs) Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. What? Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Yo, Benji. Good God. You fucking my name up is almost more frustrating than trying to post a MySpace. MySpace is pretty frustrating. I got on it once after you sent me the link to it, and... I'm like, I, I don't have time or energy for this. Yeah. For those of you who remember our Dynamotic episode, uh, first of all, we are on Twitter and Instagram, at Cinema of Cruelty. And then we thought, hey, is MySpace still a thing? And I took a look, and yeah, MySpace totes still a thing. I can create a profile, upload a profile picture and a background picture, but trying to do anything other than that, and MySpace just crashes and says, nope, can't do that. I don't know what the hell to do with MySpace, so, yeah. Well, never using the word totes again might be a start. You know... But yeah, we might just have to say, fuck MySpace. It was really important to me at the time it came up that we have a MySpace page, but yeah, fuck MySpace. Yes, I think fuck MySpace. I've heard about this Facebook thing. I might get into that. We'll see. No, we gotta go even more old school. Maybe an AOL chat handle. Oh, oh, dear chat. I bet I can look through and find my old ICQ chat number. What was your most ridiculous handle in your life, in your young preteen years? Oh, uh, I think I did something stupid like... Uh, oh, I'm sure you did. Cool. Um, what was it? It was like cool chum underscore something. It may have been like my birth year. I don't think I was basic enough cool to chum. do... Cool <laughs> You realize I'm going to call you that from now on. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Not the okay. cool part, though, just chum. How the, turn the tables here. What about you? Oh, God, yeah, I... Come on now. <laughs> I went full on on yeah. the angsty preteen user handle, and I believe mine was 
cold lit morning, but morning was spelled with a U. Only time yeah, anyone would describe you as lit. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we, we went for that deathly uh, macabre gothic pun, which is actually kind of fitting for the movie for today. Yes, that's that's very true. So the film for today, The Neon Demon by Nicholas Winding Refn, 2016, it is a movie that is very divisive, and it is also a movie that has a little bit less of an accessible plot or narrative. I was confused when I read reviews for this, and they were really upset by the way it came out, because this isn't too different from Refn's earlier work, though his other early work itself got a few different reviews. When Drive came out, people said, we love this. We love how Ryan Gosling stares vacantly at things. And then only God Forgives came out and people said, we hate the way Ryan Gosling stares vacantly at things. Don't do that. Yeah. So to provide some context, Nicholas Reffin, Danish dude, he is a Danish director and his films such as Only God Forgives and Drive have very hyper stylized qualities to them. He's very well known for his neon color palettes. So Neon Demon pretty much serves right into what we already know and love about his cinematography ways. And he tends to make these films that just have singular themes of symbols, Mm -hmm. where it's just speed or adrenaline or revenge. Or Body Butter with Bronson. Yes, Bronson's a super fun movie too. (laughs) And this film's main theme is just going to be narcissism and that's fun so lightning summary of this film there's a girl and then later on there isn't a girl yeah but there's more (laughs) girls to take her place so it's fine so we're gonna have young Elle fanning and she is an aspiring model she's an orphan and a model and she has come to la and in a fairy tale like way she is going to keep getting affirmation until that neon demon of narcissism inside her grows and grows and eventually takes over. And there will be consequences once that happens. And then we get an amazing, crazy, bonkers third act. I saw it coming. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he actually (laughs) does do a really nice job of setting up all of his symbols and tying them off and bringing them through. So in a way, you can anticipate where this is going, but yeah. What's the best thing about this film for you? Best thing about this movie, for me, hands down, cinematography. Can't get away from it. So beautiful. I never get tired of watching this movie. I will talk in detail about the technical aspects of this, how they're filming it, why the colors are the way that they are. But that sells the movie for me immediately. You can take any still frame of this film and blow it up and make a beautiful print of it that you want to put on your wall as a mural. Like This whole movie is gorgeous. Tied with that for me is Mm -hmm. that one of the things that Refn stands by is that even though a lot of critics and reviewers sort of see this as a critique of narcissism, he sees this ultimately as a ceremonial celebration of narcissism. That this movie embraces narcissism in a dark, comedic, and quasi horror way. And that's super fun, because we don't have a lot of movies that really just say, fuck yeah, narcissism. And I support that. From the research I got into and looking at interviews with Refn, it did seem like he was really pushing for a celebration of narcissism and also looking at a kind of a duality of narcissism, that there can be two sides of it. One side is good, and the other side is destructive. And he shows both sides here, but 
otherwise it is wholly about narcissism. And yeah. you're right, that is a very rare damn thing in film. Super fun. What's the worst thing? The worst thing, it's a minor gripe. But this is something that happens with any movie that takes an objective stand on what is a subjective subject. In this case, it is a movie that deals with beauty a lot, which itself is subjective. And yet twice in this movie, it says to you, this beautiful woman is objectively more beautiful than the other woman. And both times it happens, I say to myself, uh, no, no, she is not. I'm referring to Elle Fanning versus uh, Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee. They're all conventionally, marketably beautiful women. And Elle Fanning, good actor, but she's not hotter than the other two. And yet this movie really wants me to believe that she is the most beautiful of them. And again, it's a minor gripe because the movie does explain it's not necessarily about beauty so much as it is about youth and purity that the fashion industry is trying to convince itself is what they want. Yeah, it's about having that it thing, that je ne sais quoi, as it were. Oh, that it. And the youth and naivete has a lot to do with it. Mm. I do agree that it is hilarious in the moments where it comes up that oh, you are the only one here that is the sun, and Abby Lee is trash. Is <laughs> oh, my true. God, Abby Lee, look at her. Oh, God. The makeup department does a nice job throughout of sort of playing her down a little bit until later mm. in the end. So the makeup really brought it on this throughout. I can't really think of a worst thing about this film. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, actually, that I would change with it. So I think the worst thing is just that it didn't do as well or have as strong of a reception or audience base as I think this movie should. So let's break this down. All right. Well, we need to start on some just goddamn beautiful blue and purple texture. Let that music take over. Yeah, we start on this purplish blue indigo background and the credits that are going to roll over are going to be in these different neon colors and they're going to keep changing colors as the background also changes. So we have these contrasting color palettes, but not always the type of colors that you find in film. And this composition is going to come in. And this score is going to be composed by Cliff Martinez, who does pretty much all of Refn's stuff. He did Only God Forgives, he did Drive. And this soundtrack Matches. is fascinating because it's also so heavily synthetic. And in an interview that I found with Martinez, he was talking about how Refn did want him to bring in this synth feel. And his concerns initially, or Martinez's concerns initially, were this idea that when you go really heavy synth, often that just inevitably by default gets read as science fiction, because that's usually in film where we see or where we hear that type of sound. Mm. And so he's like, sure, well, yeah. Is it okay to just have this very sci-fi synth soundtrack? Do we care? And then they ultimately decided, nah, fuck it. <laughs> we're gonna fuck it. Go sci-fi. That's the good shit. We're gonna push on the sci-fi, even though this isn't really a science fiction film in the way that we think of it. In some ways, I guess maybe towards the end we could push back. Maybe it is. But he turns what would usually be a sci-fi-sounding score into a very dreamlike one, and that is very cool. Also. Side note that in these interviews, among the other influences mm -hmm. that they really wanted to emulate was once again yeah. 
motherfucking tangerine dream. We got another one. <laughs> another composer. What was the last one that was doing Tangerine uh, Dream? See, The Exorcist was one of the ones that wanted to. Oh, but right, right. Freaking this, that. <laughs> this now marks number four. Nice. So the thing wow. is, is that there is a an experimental electronic synth band that came out of like the 60s called Tangerine Dream. Mm. I have always been a really big fan of Tangerine Dream. And I thought I was alone in this. I thought nobody else cared about Tangerine Dream. And the more that we research compositions for films, the more composers that we keep coming across that are like, and also my inspiration for this soundtrack was Tangerine Dream. And I'm like, fuck yeah. So it turns out <laughs> I am not alone in this. Everyone in the industry apparently is super obsessed with Tangerine Dream. So everybody else has to get on board. You can't go wrong. Fucking Tangerine Dream. No. Oh, yeah. Also, during these credits, we learned that it is with Christina Hendricks and... Keanu Reeves. I always love when actors just have with and and before them. I don't know why. It just makes it special. Yeah. Keanu Reeves is back. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Back already. And then, spoiler alert, we see Elle Fanning dead. Okay, so this opening scene is gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. We are going to open on a close-up of what seems to be the very still, lifeless corpse of Elle Fanning, but posed in the most vogue way. So her neck is up and bent over the armchair of this high fashion couch in a way. The background to her is going to be a stark white type of wallpaper. She has these really bright fluorescent sticks basically on her face. And the makeup that she has as this camera is going to track outwards. So we're gonna start close up, it's gonna dolly back and we're slowly going to get the reveal more and more of the room that she's in. This room is going to be her in this blue plastic dress with blood just spilling down her neck, these gemstone makeup things on her eyes. As she's not breathing, her eyes are vacant and wide, and this couch seems to be in a makeshift little space in this room that is white but then there's the wooden floor and this industrial space behind her Mm -hmm. with pink outlines pink neon outlines in the window behind her so we're slowly seeing this reveal that this is a gorgeous minimalist space that's just being carved with light and yeah she has this creepy photographer dude who keeps peering up over his camera the more and more this camera keeps tracking back the more and more I have to question why this dude is so far back yeah, as see, he's photographing her. I like that the camera is doing this, but you don't need to be 50 yards away from her to, in order to get the shot, dude. Especially since later we see the photos that he has taken, and they're extremely close up. They're actually yeah. too close up <laughs> at the wrong angle because he's an amateur photographer. So yeah, that doesn't quite match. But at the same time, once again, this is a very synthetic space that we're trying to set up. So in a weird way, in this strange dreamlike yeah. way, it and does work. God, the look he's giving her is so fucking creepy. I mean, give this guy like a top hat and like a fake eyelash and he's Malcolm McDowell at the start of A Clockwork Orange. He's looking really sinister here. Yeah, actually, the entire opening shot does remind me a lot of the opening shot from Clockwork Orange it because it starts on that couch yeah. and it tracks out mm-hmm. and we keep getting more and more of the room mm-hmm. as this weird synth music plays. So apt comparison. 
But <laughs> this opening shot, we have to ask, is she dead? Do we care? It doesn't make a difference, right? Since we don't know this girl yet, we're pretty much being introduced to her as this non-living, quasi-living piece of meat that is beautiful. So the commentary for this did have both Refn and Elle Fanning on it together. It was Elle Fanning's first commentary, Uh-oh. which was pretty cute. Aww. She was very nervous about it. And she recalled filming this scene and that the lights were so, so hot. And that she has this weird skill where she can just keep her eyes open for a long amount of time. And apparently she can also still her breathing pretty well because... She does look super dead, and according to Refin, they did nothing in post to remove her pulse or her breath. How that does this one is just acquire her. this skill? In this scene. How do you practice this? Why do you practice that? It's super impressive. So she just kind of goes into this little zen place. And this is also the first scene that they filmed, because, fun fact about this movie, they filmed it all in sequence, which is very rare in filmmaking. If you're an actor, it's a great luxury, because you can feel the character out a lot more that way, and it can be a much more natural thing you have going on. But just logistically, from a production point of view, filming a movie in sequence is really difficult. Yeah, and it's not done very often, but apparently Refn films all of his stuff in sequence like a goddamn madman. <laughs> but wow. why he does this is because he doesn't storyboard. He doesn't fully script anything because he enjoys the process of allowing an actor in a space to do something or take it somewhere, which according to him then changes where the rest of the movie is going to go. So they have a vague concept <laughs> that they're working with and then they go with it. Yeah. It makes it interesting in that way that so many of his themes are set up throughout, that a lot of things do carry over. And I could see that being a byproduct of filming in sequence, but Mm -hmm. I could also see that being really hard to accomplish when you're filming in sequence, to remember to tie certain things back that you did on day one, since you're not storyboarding and you're not scripting ahead of time. (laughs) You'd think you'd write yourself into corners, but he's just abstract enough that he doesn't seem to write himself into too many corners, because there's enough open for interpretation Mm -hmm. moments or enough ways to tie symbols together in abstract ways that... I mean, he definitely did script ahead of time in some ways on this film. He actually brought in two female playwrights to work with him on this because he realized this is a movie about women. I need women to be giving the voice. So he had an outline of what he hoped the movie would be and had the playwrights work with him on that. And I imagine the script was just changing on a day-by-day basis. One thing I could never find in interviews or in articles about this was what was the original movie supposed to be? Because it did change as filming commenced, and I've never been able to find what the original thing was. I'm just kind of curious because they make such a big deal about how they change things as they go along, and you just wonder, well, change from what to what exactly? Yeah, I know that when he went to get the financing from, I think it was a French company that gave him financing for this, that gave him $5 million to make this film, that he gave them more of a treatment concept, that Mm -hmm. he was going to do a movie about a 16-year-old girl, and about being born beautiful, and narcissism, and the neon demon. <laughs> and that was, because I in one interview I saw that it was still in the process of making the movie, and the guy asked him, so who is the neon demon? And his response was, 
I don't know yet. There is a neon demon in this, but I don't know who it is yet. (laughs) The craziest story about the script changing, though, to me, is when he was bringing on Natasha Breyer, who was the cinematographer for this film. He also wanted to have a a female cinematographer for the thing. We're looking at women the whole time. We need a woman to lens that. He gave her a script. She read it and she says, well, okay, yeah, it's the crazy style that you're known for. It's just the dialogue seems really strange. And he says, oh, well, yeah, that's the fake script. You don't have that's not the real script. That's the fake one. Oh, okay. When do I see the real script? Oh yeah, you'll you'll see it. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks for thinking of me here. I'll I'll think about this. And on the way home, she's driving home and she gets a call from her agent and says, uh, "Yeah, Nick says you got the job." Well, I didn't read the script yet. I read the fake one though. What's going on here? <laughs> it's like great. So his poor cinematographer, Natasha Breyer. First of all, she's amazing, but oh, yeah. also this interviewer asked him, okay, so how does your cinematographer feel about all of this constantly changing stuff, right? When you change in the moment, that's not great for your lighting guys. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's one of the things that takes longest in a movie. So anybody who works in the film industry certainly knows this, is that one of the longest things is setting up those goddamn lights. Uh, like you just, fucking things. everybody rushes to get ready and then you just wait around for the lights to get set. And so generally there's some planning that goes into cinematography. Mm-hmm. Especially a movie that looks like this, right? Because this movie is so exquisitely lit. So yeah, the question was, how does your cinematographer feel about this? And Refn was like, oh yeah, she's been great. Usually it just starts with, hey, I have an idea. And then she just does it. (laughs) So superstar. And this was Natasha Breyer's first time using a digital camera for a feature film. She had done commercials on digital before, but she had never had any time to really play around with the camera and see what it could do. So she said that for her, this was like a crazy experience of really working out like, what can this camera do? What can I do with the lights? Where can I take the colors? We'll get into all the colors in this. But yeah, it turned out great. And let's just get into the next scene because this is another beautiful... Yeah, speaking of amazing cinematography. It's a beautiful scene and a simple, simply lit scene. I can't talk, but whatever. We're moving on. Can't do anything. We have Elle Fanning cleaning up the blood. The way that she cleans up the fake blood from her arm just gives me anxiety because she's using the tiniest goddamn rags. And she's not wiping anything off. She's just pushing the fake blood around in her arms. I'm like, oh, God, it's like Zoolander where... Ben Stiller's character is wiping all this coal off his face with these tiny little cotton balls. You're going to be there forever <laughs> trying to claim yourself off. It's it's not going to work. All right. That's fair, but I'm going to defend her here. All right. Fine. As an effects person, I'm uh, going to defend her here. Yes. So, yes, what happens is we are going to cut to Elle Fanning slash Jesse as a character wiping this blood off what with I said happened. baby yes. wipes. Yes, that's what I said. These makeup removing towels or baby wipes are generally some of the best ways to get fake blood off because they don't aggravate the skin as much since Mm -hmm. they're for babies. They're a little bit better for the skin. Mm -hmm. The issue here is that what's happening is that outside of this film world, on a extra diegetic level, (laughs) she has done this scene multiple times. And what looks like was happening here is that the blood was starting to stain her skin. So as she's wiping Mm. up this blood, the blood is actually coming up, but her arms are staying super red on camera. And that's actually more of a staining thing that has set into her skin through so many takes that I don't think probably looked as red in the moment on Uh, set, but on camera came out really, really red. So I do see where it causes some anxiety because it's like, oh my God, you have so much to go. But 
yeah, that red stain is not coming off for a little while, no matter how many wipes or whatever she uses. That's sunk in there. I was concerned about this character's skin, and I'm not the only one here who's concerned about this character's skin, because guess who else is there? Ruby, played by Jenna Malone, who we last saw in Donnie Darko. Slightly different character this time around, though. Yes. So Ruby is here, Jenna Malone's character, Ruby. Mm -hmm. She is the makeup artist, and their eyes are going to meet through the mirror. So her character is introduced, as many are, through mirrors. And mirrors play a big part in this movie, as sensibly they should. I love that they are having this conversation through the mirrors, and every time we cut to them, the faces that we see talking are the mirrored faces each time. And it's perfect shot, reverse shot, don't cross the 180 line, it's very well set up, and it's just all done through mirrors, and I love shit like that. Yeah, you thought there were mirrors and showgirls? Uh, wait till <laughs> oh, you see the neon demon. <laughs> and the thing that's going to be really cool here, first, we're going to have the first opening lines of the film, because there's been no dialogue so far. That's true, yeah. Which is spoken by Ruby. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I staring? (laughs) Am I staring is going to be the opening lines of this film. And it's going to be another just really great thematic setup. Because that is what Elle's character is going to be here to do and be. Is to just be stared at and gazed upon and adored. Both by others and herself. And then that's going to be followed up by, why is she staring? She's staring because she just has such beautiful skin. Damn, that skin, girl. What's up? We learn that she's an orphan. Her parents are dead. And she's come to L.A. to be a model because she's pretty. These are some things that seem like weird things to conjoin, Mm -hmm. right? Ruby's obsessed with her skin. And also, Jesse is an orphan. These are the two things that we learn from this dialogue exchange. And yet, these are two very fundamental premises of this film because what we have here is, even as Refn will say, a fairy tale. So it's best to think of this movie in fairy tale terms. And we're getting right out the gate this idea of an orphan because fairy tales all about the orphans, right? Mm. That coming of age exploration into the unknown wilderness by the poor recently orphaned protagonist. Ugh. And that's what we're going to get here. We got it in midsummer and we're getting it here. Fucking just orphans, the orphan man. girl. Just hardcore. And we're also going to have Jenna Malone staring at her bloody neck. Yo. Cuz this is where I'm going to tell you something that is not going to come back around for a little while, but this is a movie about vampires. What? What? London. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're mistaken. This is a movie about the fashion industry. It, it's also a movie about the fashion industry, yeah, but this is a that. vampire film. I don't, and I don't know. I it's going to take the movie a really long time to get around to actually stating that directly. I feel like they would tell us that at the start if it was about vampires. I don't know why that's that seems strange. Well, they do tell us that from the start because we have Jenna Malone gazing longingly at Elle Fanning's bloody neck and talking about how beautiful her skin is. Yeah, she has nice skin. That's important in the fashion industry, London. I don't know. What? What connection? to vampires it's just you're crazy you're cra- and she's crazy obviously super hot for Elle Fanning well, she's super I mean, hot for Jesse why would you not be best thing that she had going before Elle Fanning was Jake Gyllenhaal and well we saw how that turned out in a rather in a rather predatory way and I'm going to talk later a little bit more about the specific vampire figure that Ruby is based off of but just remember that 
in vampire cinema, what we generally have is a certain erotic predatory obsession with consumption and sexual dynamics and power. And we're going to largely maintain that throughout, but we're not going to make it explicit until the third act. Now, it's also interesting to me, once again, setups, gotta gotta spend a lot of time setting up oh, this film. set that shit up. It is interesting to me that they make Ruby the makeup artist. She's not another model, she is the makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And that is a very curious position that the makeup artist has with models or with actors. It's a certain vulnerable power position in a weird way because one of the few crew members that generally interacts with the talent the cast or the model is going to be the makeup hair and wardrobe people and there's something about the way that makeup artists interact mostly with actors my experience is more in the film industry than the modeling one but these are people who they're human right so they have their own anxieties, they're self-conscious, and it's the makeup artist's job to make them camera ready, right? To cover up any of the potential insecurities, and you're generally touching their faces for like six hours a day. It's a weirdly intimate interaction. You're up in their business, it's a very intimate thing, and there has to be a lot of trust between model and makeup person, because if the makeup person's not doing their job, then the model is fucked. Yeah, so, and it's weird because it often turns into this sort of onset therapist, because you're touching their face for mm-hmm. six hours a day, you're covering up their insecurities, you talk about stuff, they tell you about their lives, and mm-hmm. it's a very bizarre relationship. It's a rewarding one, but it's, it's a very strange one. And so it's interesting to me that, yeah, they make Ruby that makeup artist, especially in this model discourse where... It's her job to make Jesse camera ready and beautiful. Well, Ruby decides it's time, after they've cleaned Jesse up a little bit, it's time to go to a party. But what kind of party? The fun kind. The fun kind. I just love that line. Now, you want to go to a party? Well, what kind of party? The fun kind. And God, Jenna Malone has such a devil smile on her face when she says that, too. I yeah, love Jenna Malone. she does a really nice film. job in this yeah. film. Absolutely. And they go to the, the blue and purple party. It's just, yeah. It's just the it's party where everything is goddamn blue and purple everywhere. And they're going to arrive in an elevator that is lit from the inside with this violet purple <laughs> light. And it's spectacular. Yo. Holy shit, that purple elevator. And we immediately meet our the two other main characters of this film, Sarah and Gigi. They are going to soon go into the bathroom of this place. The blue and purple bathroom. And I guess we should talk about how the fact that the saturation of colors in this film is so intense for a very good reason. And that reason being is that Nicholas Winding Refn admits he is very colorblind and can only really see contrast, and is also very proud of that. In an interview with the Lincoln Center, he stated, being colorblind is a wonderful thing to have, and I wish everyone had it. I'm glad that he is glad that he's colorblind. Yeah. Yeah, his colorblindness, as far as I understand, it's not your standard one in which red and green is not visible. I believe that's the most standard, is mm-hmm. the inability to distinguish right. red and green. The way he describes it, he says, I, I don't see midtones. I don't see yeah. in between. You have to push the color really hard for me to be able to see it. And that is fascinating, especially since his movies, as a result, are some of the most 
gorgeous color palettes that we have in modern cinema. And it's astounding to me to think of what he sees when he watches his movies versus the rest of us, just because they're so beautiful. It's like, I wish everybody's colorblind. I'm like, I... I'm glad I can see these colors on your screen. I don't know what my other alternative would be. I don't know what it is you see, but this is fucking gorgeous. I, yeah, it just blows my mind. And it's really fun to think that it's a result of the fact that he doesn't process color the same way. And in this bathroom, the light fixtures all have, uh, I think Natasha Breyer described it as just adding gels to every single light in the room. So you have purple coming up to the ceiling, blue going down, mixing the colors together and which at first seems strange to me because we see Gigi in there putting on some lipstick and she says I love this color on me and I think to myself okay is a blue and purple bathroom really the best place to try to determine which color works best on you but then again the entire party is blue and purple so I guess it doesn't really matter I was going to say, if where you're wearing that color is in a blue and purple party, then yeah, yeah. you want to test out your best colors in the lighting that you're going to be in. Yeah, and <laughs> Ruby calls the lipstick red rum. Red rum. Okay, we're going to talk about red rum while we're looking in a mirror. All right, let's see what you did there. See, <laughs> it's, it's one of two references to the shine in this movie. I'll point out the other one later. But it is a really great opening line for her character. Mm. God, I love this color yeah. on me. Right? It's another interesting narcissistic statement. It's all about the self. And so we're going to have a bunch of characters that are just different embodiments of self-consciousness and narcissism. And it's a super fun little collection of people, with the exception of Ruby. Ruby doesn't seem to exhibit any of these tendencies, but the models in her life mm -hmm. do. So, yes, these are her two friends, Gigi and Sarah, played by Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee. Bella Heathcote is an actress, first and foremost, but Abby Lee actually is a model, a supermodel, even one might say. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I found fascinating to learn from the commentary is that I had always assumed that Abby Lee had been cast in this movie specifically because it is a movie about the modeling industry, and she, at the time, was one of the biggest industry models. So at the height of her career, she actually ranked fourth. And oh, if you wow. go on models.com, just last night, actually, I went to go check her ranking. And in the industry icons subsection, the thumbnail picture for industry icons is a picture of Abby Lee. So that's how big <laughs> nice. Abby Lee is as a model. Uh, and I assumed that she was cast accordingly. According to both Ellen Reffin, apparently Reffin had no idea that Abby Lee was a model when he cast her. He just thought she was interesting during her audition, and so he cast her to play this model. And then later he was on set and learned from Elle, who had to stress very strongly, no, she is a big deal. She is a model. Nick's like, asshole, I've been making films about Muay Thai for the past two years. I don't have time to know about models. Come on, give me a break. Yeah, he's like, this isn't my field. Gigi is just gushing over Jesse. She's like, oh my God, is that your real hair color? Is that your real nose? That's amazing. You haven't had any work done. I've had all the work done. My doctor calls me the bionic woman. Is that a compliment? Well, yeah, can be. Why not? Yeah, I mean, so Gigi has had all of this plastic surgery, and she's very proud of that because she has worked for her beauty from her perspective. Rightfully so. And then she just gets shot down by <laughs> Jesse. And her snide little, what, is that a compliment? 
kind of ways. I was like, bitch, you got some bite. Uh-huh. You think you're like this naive little fairy tale orphan, but you're kind of a bitch in training. <laughs> and he merely brings up the it. orphan thing, just says, oh yeah, Ruby tells me your parent's dead. That's gotta suck. <laughs> and yeah, they look over at Ruby. So Ruby's, I hear your parents are dead. Yeah, Ruby just like kind of shies away, like, jeez, you know. <laughs> like, when did Ruby even have time to tell them that? My God, that's some quick information. But Sarah wants to know who are you fucking because every woman looks at other women and says, who is she fucking? Is she fucking someone who can get her ahead? And can that get her more ahead than me? Because modeling is a super competitive sports or super competitive industry and it seems like every woman is out to get each other yeah competition we're also getting another important setup here with the lipstick because the lipstick they're trying on they have a discussion about how all lipstick is named after food or sex which red rum is neither of those but whatever yeah i mean rum (laughs) is edible i suppose (laughs) and alcohol is generally associated with sexual things there's some high calories to both whatever it's a little bit both (laughs) but they do very blatantly ask jesse which one are you are you food or sex yeah and this is going to be seemingly a throwaway question but another really important setup for the rest of the film because once again remember Vampires and the I question with vampires. I, I don't know. This seems this seems strange, London. I don't know. I don't know. Is often this ideology. Yeah. Okay. It's about vampires. They all see themselves in the mirror. Boom. Explain that. Yeah. Vampire lore is fluid, and some lore has the no mirror thing. Some see themselves in mirrors just fine, and then you have Lost Boys where they just see a translucent <laughs> image for whatever reason, so it's fine. But in vampire stuff. We do have this idea as it grew and the vampire became more of a sexual figure that food and sex are somewhat synonymous for the vampire. Mm. And if there are vampires in this movie, that would make sense. But whatever, you know. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Just, yeah, that there are not, definitely not vampires. Because those vampires will appear. There are definitely not vampires in this movie because that would be crazy. Why would you put vampires in a movie about the fashion industry? It's just like, what? Crazy. But enough of that. Uh, Ruby takes Jesse through some doors. They now go into a kind of a black void area. The sets in this movie are very minimal. I imagine on purpose because they didn't have the highest budget. You can't dress a set terribly detailed as you would like to on small budgets but they go in and there's some strobes going off and there's some shibari action going on very artful knots lifted up yeah they walk into this room because they're like hey i hear there's going to be a show and the show turns out to be this one girl a rope bunny as it were who's being descended on a wire all tied and The camera and the set are doing some really cool things here because we're going to start having this strobe light effect as the music begins to pick up in a very steady beat way. And at first, the entire environment is going to be going from a deep, rich, blackish burgundy to bright red as it beats and as this one tied woman goes in and out of the flashing strobe light. And it's very cool because it has a very heartbeat-like effect. It almost looks anatomically from far away before the image approaches the camera closer. Mm -hmm. The way that this woman is tied does almost have this anatomical heart feeling when it's all red and the beating of the heart is happening. Once again, important, because vampires. Also, this combination of bondage and sex and fashion is going to be a really cool image. 
And as she comes closer, we're going to get a lot of what are going to be two of the most important symbols, at least for Refn in this film, mm-hmm. are the womb and death imagery that's going to carry on throughout. Because as this woman comes closer, there's something fetal position in a weird way, but open in the opposite way. But there's that curl that's happening in this suspended dark space. And she looks possibly both dead and possibly gestating at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Revan's going to be all about that womb and death imagery throughout the rest of this. <laughs> it was definitely all about the woman only God forgives. My God. <laughs> so this is the type of show that these vampire models are into. Yeah, it's true. Good time. The next day, Jesse's getting ready to head off to go to the big agency. She arrives and meets with this woman named Roberta Hoffman, uh, played by Christina Hendricks, who is earning that and before her name in the opening credits. And this is really, to me, where you really get the fairy tale aspect of it, because Christina Hendricks is looking through the photos and says, you know, I see 20, 30 girls coming here every single day with big dreams. None of them are good enough, but you... You, you're going to be big. You're going to go to all the places. And that's such a just straightforward dream of every girl who goes into L.A. uh, dreaming big. And that's exactly what everyone wants to hear. So, yeah, definitely a a very fairy tale-esque scene to have. And it's a beautiful room with a lovely view of L.A. too. Yes, these floor-to-ceiling windows and through those windows... We can see Echo Park. <laughs> we just did Fast and the Furious, I where love, the Echo Park neighborhood. I love that geographically between episodes, we're really not moving at all. We're <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like... well, that's the kind of interesting thing. So in Fast and the Furious, we talked about how Rob Cohen really wanted to show the lived-in neighborhood side of LA because most people thought of it as this sterile, flat, expansive space, which we jump right into with Neon Demon. This is the LA that people think of Mm -hmm. as this glamour, Hollywood, shallow, synthetic space. So it's fun. We have that merging. So simultaneously, she's trying to rise above in this vampire model world, like somewhere out there. Vin Diesel is racing in his Dodge Charger. It's great. It's <laughs> just, great. It all out there, happens yeah. at the same time. Christina Hendricks asked Jesse about her age. Jesse mentions, like, yeah, I'm kind of still in high school. Okay, great. Let me go get a form. And there's a little small bit that I really like. Christina Hendricks goes to see her secretary, grabs a form, and turns to these four women who are waiting out in the lobby. And she looks at all four of them over, points at one, and just says, you can go. And then heads back and the woman gets up and starts crying and heads away. And I've seen that moment where the cast director just says, uh, yeah, you don't need to be here anymore. Go. Yeah. Just automatic dismissal. Yep. We're also going to get some comments on Jesse's looks here. So Hendrix is going to passive aggressively in a way tell her, I would never say you're fat. But someone else will. You understand? <laughs> like, whoa, bitch. Oh. And yeah, set up right there that this modeling industry, it's going to be cruel. It's going to be brutal. And we're also going to learn that Jesse's only 16. And Christina Hendricks tells her, uh, just say that you're 19. 18 is two on the nose. Tell people you're 19. Which nope. is true. I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to go with 19, not 18. Yeah. 19's like that forgotten year. It's always hard <laughs> to remember that 19's an age. Yeah. It's weird. You're just kind of 18 to 21 most of the time. People skip that over. <laughs> what do you do? Then back at the motel. She is going to take some time figuring out the best way to forge this parental consent form that she 
has to have because you know, she's a minor and all that. And it's a very slow scene. Not You don't really think too much of it until you realize this is all happening in a mirror because the camera slowly pulls away and you realize, oh, oh, we're looking at the mirror image of her room while she does this. Yeah, it's another really cool way to set up your shot. And we're really hammering this mirror thing home. <laughs> as many shots as we can get through mirrors, that's going to be how we do the shot. And that has a lot to do with, one, just the look of it is pretty cool and the craft of it, but also the symbology, this reflection thing that's happening, this shallow reflection thing, and the fact that these characters are always looking at themselves in the mirror and that that reflection is almost a separate entity in some ways. Raffin kept talking about how much the mirrors also played into his whole thesis statement of making everything as synthetic as possible, or indirect as possible. That makes sense. The big aspect of this film is that it is filmed anamorphically, which most people know know that frame when they see it. It's a 2.35 by 1 aspect ratio, very widescreen. A thing that a lot of cinematographers and filmmakers love about capturing something anamorphic is that it does gently distort the image and give it a much more painterly quality to it. Anamorphic lenses tend to distort the lines on the edge of the screen. So if you watch the scenes carefully, if we have something that is meant to be like a, a wall, will suddenly become a little curved if it reaches the edge of the screen. And you also have a lot of horizontal lens flares, which are very common with anamorphic lenses. It has to do with the fact that the front element of an anamorphic lens, instead of being a slice of a sphere, is actually a slice of a cylinder, which is how it achieves that horizontal warping effect, and also because of that, the flares that come through the lens are very horizontal in nature. And it's something that amateur filmmakers strive for so much. If you go to YouTube, you can find all these crazy DIY solutions uh, for trying to get that flare look going on because anamorphic lenses are very expensive. And also, it's very hard to use old school anamorphic lenses on modern cameras because most modern cameras are 16 by 9. Anamorphic lenses from days gone by are meant to be used on 35mm cameras. 35mm film has a 4 by 3 aspect ratio. For this film, they have to be filming on the Arri Alexa XT+, which does have a 4x3 digital sensor, so they could put on these super cool uh, anamorphic lenses from Cook called the Cook... It's spelled like X-T-A-L, but you're supposed to pronounce it Chris Dahl, I found out. Like, oh, God. <laughs> Good Lord, Cook. But these are lenses. The lenses they used on this film have been used on everything from Return of the Jedi, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy... Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising. I just include that last one because it's an example of how cinematography and lenses really have nothing to do with the genre. They're just, they're all over the place. <laughs> but the type of sensor they're using, the type of lens they're using, and the way that they're lighting this, they're lighting this movie for lens flares a lot. Much in the way you might see J.J. Abrams do for his movies, you know, loving the lens flares and all that. And they lean into that hard in this film and really embrace the distortion and the weird qualities that anamorphic lenses can bring. And it is definitely creating, a, as you said, a synthetic world because anamorphic is not known for accurately reproducing an image mm -hmm. uh, for a film. 
cinematographers like Roger Deakins, who's one of the more famous uh, directors of photography working today, hates anamorphic lenses, never uses them. He always uses spherical lenses that do not have that distortion, and he hates lens flares. He doesn't want any artifacts in there. So it's, you know, just a one approach of many when it comes to cinematography. And this movie goes hard on the synthetic, artificial, distorted, not natural look. And mm-hmm. that is all to its credit and to its strength. I love that about this film. And that push towards the synthetic feel is going to carry over when photographer Dean from earlier, who shot her <laughs> dead Dean. corpse shoot, is going to come and pick her up for a date. And he's going to pick her up in his car. I brought and my they are going to drive through LA. And as they're driving, when you look at what they're passing, that is going to be a moment of blue screen driving. So these actors Mm -hmm. are just sitting in a car in a studio and they are blue screening in the scenery. And Refn did talk about how that was another very specific decision in order to once again create as much of a synthetic atmosphere as possible. Because he actually had not used blue screen driving before even though motherfucker did drive yeah so i guess wow. that means he did that all live he mounted a lot he... of cameras onto those cars holy yeah. shit go figure well they head up to go to that place where you can just see all of la yeah this is a classic shot of la up there mm-hmm. on the hills overlooking the entire landscape a lot of commercials are set up here yeah really any film that's supposed to be set in la half the time ends up up here so you can get that <laughs> cityscape shot and i love that in this scene we get a little backstory on jesse and she explains that she came to la and really knows she has no talent she cannot sing she can't dance she can't act she can't write but she's pretty, so that makes money. Give yeah, that a shot. she's not wrong. <laughs> she is going to be standing on this ledge, walking back and forth in this gorgeous purple dress. And it does look a little bit like she's just walking the entire landscape of the city and back, right? It's this naive girl trying to conquer the city mm-hmm. and walk through it. And also tells us that she, as a child, would look up at the moon as if the moon were a great eye wreathed in flame, lidless. I'm sorry, went into a whole thing there. <laughs> but she would wonder as a child, could the moon look back at her? Did the moon see her? And the moon will figure in a lot in this movie. Yeah, as is the fact that she just wants to be seen yeah. right, by everything, including the moon. This is going to be another really cool, strange synthetic shot because L.A. is indeed behind them. But the moon and the stars here are digitally added in in post. And so once again, we have this synthetic spread of the sky and this larger-than-life, brighter-than-life moon and artificial moonlight that is coming down on them. Mm -hmm. We're also going to have this very bizarre transition moment, mostly because of time constraints, where in one moment she's walking the landscape of L.A. in the dusk, and then it's going to cut to Dark Knight. There's mm-hmm. going to be nothing in between. Instant Knight for all your Instant Knight needs. They just did not have time to get the shots that they needed before the sunset. It is interesting what they do in this moment to tie these cuts together. And it's not going to be the only time this happens. The music in this. So Martinez's score is very, very interesting in that it actually acts as a 
editorial transition in a way that music often doesn't in films. And so we'll have this moment where the music is playing while it's dusk, and then it's gonna do this weird little chime thing, and it's gonna stop right as it cuts to the night. And that was a very deliberate thing, because they were like, we don't have any other ways to tie these two cuts together, mm -hmm. so we're gonna use sound to do it. Very cool, and it does work. You just let it happen because it has that almost magical chime moment of we're just gonna summon the night here. Something to watch for, it's nice. or listen for, as the case may be. That's pretty good. And after their date, Dean drives Jesse back to her motel, tries to go in for a kiss on the cheek, and is denied. Oh yeah, it's a hard denial. Yeah, hard, hard no on uh, on that one, and gets a handshake instead. Jesse heads up. And Dean is now in the parking lot and says, Hey, Jesse, and points up at the moon. And this is enough to win Jesse over and say, You want to go out again? Because you point at the moon. It is a bizarre moment. Like, last we saw Dean, he was still in his car and he was going to drive away. Jesse's walking up the steps to her <laughs> motel room. And all of a sudden, he just calls out to her, Jesse! She looks over the railing, points to the moon. And you're like, what possessed you to run out of your car to yell after her to point at the moon? <laughs> it's a weird gameplay. Very, a very strange thing. I do want to talk about the moon in a different context here. One thing that I know is a big part of Nicholas Wanding Reference life is the tarot. He is very close with Alejandro, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky is a very well-known tarot card reader. Uh, is very passionate about that and was giving Refn tarot readings both like before most of his movies and apparently during on the weekends while he was making this one, according to one of his interviews. But the tarot deck has two halves, the major arcana, the minor arcana. The major arcana are numbered cards. The 18th card in the deck is called The Moon. Alejandro Jodorowsky has a book on the tarot called The Tarot Spiritual Guidance, and his chapter on the moon is titled receptive female power, which is what the moon is all about to him. And the key words associated with the moon are words like intuition, feminine, gestation, cosmic mother, dream, mystery, attraction, magnetic, madness, and uncertainty. And in a reading, if you're a woman and the moon card comes up, Jorowski says, for a woman, this card can be the omen of a profound realization. Its infinite receptive potential is its greatest treasure. So I, this is conjecture, obviously, but I have to wonder if that influence played a part in this story that one that Refn is telling here, that that is, in a way, what the moon is meant to represent is very close to its representation in the tarot deck. Yeah, Refn will talk about Yodorowsky a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> in the commentary the in his interviews. Okay. Oh, in the commentary too. Okay, cool. So yeah, anything that Yodorowsky has to say, Refn is open to. <laughs> so this is probably something that he's bringing in. Later, he is going to talk about just the ceremonial ritual of the moonlight in the third act. Mm, so okay. yeah, having this synthetic moon in here is certainly very deliberate. And a lot of those words are hitting right on the words that Refn is all about in terms of the symbology of this movie, that gestation, right? That yeah. womb stuff, the feminine stuff, <laughs> the weird dreams and the madness and the uncertainty that are going to happen. So yeah, absolutely. I'd say he's probably right on board with that. Another weird thing that's happening yeah. with the synthetic stuff in this scene, as she walks up, there's going to be 
a lot of distortion in a smeared way in the lights here. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Sometimes cinematographers will put Vaseline and whatnot over their lenses. Old, old school trick to buck with shit. Well, hopefully on the filters in front of the lenses, not the glass itself. God, trying to clean that off, just uh, that gives me anxiety just thinking about that. Okay, well, so <laughs> hang on for this one. So what Natasha Breyer would do instead to do a bit of a softer type of weird oily distortion is, according to Refin, she would actually take some of the oil that was on her skin. No. She was kind of like sweaty or her forehead no. was oily. She would actually take some and put it on the lens. No! And that is what we no! were seeing is the oh! distortion oh, no! of this Natasha. fog. Oh, oh this God. That, that, that lens didn't ask for that. Damn it all. Well, it got it anyway. And I find that fascinating. So it's like, okay, so what we're seeing here it looks really cool. It does. And I guess we do have a very experimental cinematographer on our hands because I have never seen another DP do that. But cool. I mean, it looks great. It looks great. And I guess it does have a certain theoretical overlap with this idea <sighs> of marketing just the body and using the body to create beauty. But Wow. Yeah. Well, there's a mountain lion in her room. Uh, just... Skipping on to that, Jessie opens her door and she hears, well, she hears something growling in her room, sees something moving. It goes downstairs to check with the manager. And this is where we meet that beautiful meat puppet himself, Keanu Reeves, as the hotel manager. And my God, I love Keanu Reeves in this movie. So Keanu Reeves is in this film. <laughs> I guess we should provide some context to the meat puppet thing. The there was an interview in which he described himself as merely a meat puppet. Yeah, they said, are, are you a collaborator on this? Do you give ideas? And he just said, I'm a meat puppet here, man. Like, I do what I'm told. I am of service and I feel free. And... <laughs> like, uh, awesome. I just love him in this movie, especially because this is very against type for Keanu Reeves. You never see him play someone this just nasty and evil in films. But by God, he is bringing it on this one. Apparently, Refn, while he was staying in Los Angeles, was staying in the home next door to Keanu Reeves's mother. As you do. Mm -hmm. He had met him in Paris before, so he met up with him again and said, hey, you want to do this part in this movie? And I was like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> so they walk up to fight this intruder, open the door, and find that there is a mountain lion that has gotten into her room and is just tearing shit up in the dark. <laughs> and it's a cool shot because this majestic mountain lion just appears. And it seems crazy that a mountain lion could get into a motel room, but this is a real motel, really in Pasadena. And if you go to the Pasadena City website, there actually is a warning section about mountain lions. They say, do not leave your back doors open, even if you think you're in a safe neighborhood. A mountain lion could come out. Yeah, so this mountain lion has gotten in, and we get another sense of a very odd, just invasive predator moment here that there mm -hmm. are things that are hungry that want to consume her and dangers can lurk in all of these strange weird places so her world is very unsafe in lots of ways this is a world that's full of predators and she's turning to one very predatory seeming <laughs> dude keanu reeves yeah to help her fight off another predatory seeming thing this mountain lion and so it's a bad situation all around this mountain lion 
real little dude. They brought a mountain lion and they set him loose in this motel room. I guess this mountain lion, when they released her, him, her, I don't know what kind of mountain lion was, into this hotel room. It was one of the longest shoots that they had during filming. They let this thing just wander around in this room for two hours because they had no control over it. They didn't know what it was going to do. So they just shot it for two hours and used this moment. One word, London. White. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very abrupt change here. We go from this dark motel room with the mountain lion to just a white void. And as it turns out, we're actually in a photography studio where a shoot is about to take place. Jesse arrives. Ruby sees her, runs up to her, super happy, spends a long time keeping her hand on her neck. Very strange thing to do there, just to really examine Jesse's neck, but whatever. Because you know what likes necks? Vampires. No, makeup designers like necks, London, because this is about the fashion industry. Get off the... Goddamn vampire! I was going to say we don't though, but we do. We do. We do like snacks. <laughs> but she also likes snacks because vampires. And oh, God. Desmond Harrington is going to play this creepy photographer, yeah. and he is looking really, really skinny here. Yeah. Very slim down from what he will be in other roles. Yeah, I was going to say he looks almost gaunt in the in these scenes that he's in. Yeah, it he is, looks very gaunt. It's definitely unsettling. Why Reffin liked this look for the movie is that he even mentions, like, at the time, Desmond was very, very skinny, and we shaved his head for the film so that his ears seemed a little bit more pointy, and we exaggerated that because he was really trying to channel this Nosferatu energy. So oh, Reffin's okay. going to call this this Nosferatu character. Yeah, who that checks. Who is going to get this silhouetted introduction of his character in a bit here where he's going to walk through and we're going to see this silhouette and he's holding his body in a slightly Nosferatu way because vampires. So this is another because vampire of fashion sorts. designer. God, London, you're on this. You're obsessed. It's unhealthy. Not the blood drinking kind in this case, although he might. I don't know his <laughs> life fully, but this is the type that, yeah, is feeding off of this youth for a certain type of sustenance. This photo shoot area is going to be at Smashbox. So we're going to get... Jesse walking into a photo shoot that's happening that, from my understanding, was an actual photo shoot that was happening at Smashbox oh. that Refn okay. set up with Smashbox to rent their studio space for the filming, but also to, you know, just because it's cheaper if you don't have to hire people to do it. Right. And you just sort of work out a little <laughs> settlement deal with somebody who's already doing it to get that in the shot. Then we are going to get to use the Smashbox space. And Ruby has dressed up Jesse in an interesting outfit. It's kind of a flowing dress, but on her face, we've added what look like golden metallic piece. I don't know what how to describe it, but it's like we've added metal pieces to Jesse's face. It's pretty badass looking, and you can't really tell if the photographer is happy about that or not. Yeah, so he's going to close down the set. He dismisses Ruby, and he's going to approach her and he's going to tell her take off your shoes take off your clothes and she's going to be standing there in this flesh-colored bra and panty set yep desmond harris will have her stripped down and say all of it right and we'll just get a 
chest up or collarbone up shot. It's a very mm-hmm. close shot. So right. we don't see anything down, but we get her removing her clothes. In this scene, the implication is that 16-year-old Jesse is now completely nude in front of this very creepy man alone in a now darkened room. Yeah, and the horror is creeping in. This is where we see a little bit of the horror part of this movie because it is tense. You do not know what this dude is going to do. We're back into that predator of beauty space. And he tells her to turn around and then he flicks off the lights and we're like, holy shit. The next thing we see is him with this gold makeup that's just dripping. He's got a palm full of it, Mm -hmm. which seems to be some sort of gold cake makeup mixed with water and silicon, I would assume what mixture is there. And he just takes it and smears it on her shoulder, on her chest. Up her neck and jaw. like Yeah, really grab onto that neck in this interesting asphyxiation kind of way. So there's Once again, that mixture of death and the erotics of possible violence and predatory stances and death and whatnot because vampires. (laughs) Because predatory fashion photographer. Whatever. Moving on. Same thing. It's scary as hell, as it should be. It's very effective. And however, really, we're kind of told afterwards, nothing really happened. It was all good because the next scene is Jesse heading outside to see Ruby. And Ruby's just like, what the fuck happened in there? Oh, it's all good. We got some photos done. And Jesse does not appear at all phased by what just happened. No, well, because what's going to importantly happen here is a certain beginning gestation of transformation. And so as this gold is going to cover her entire body, we're going to get the front shot. And what's really interesting is how mountain lion she looks in Mm. this shot. So we have the gold decals all over her face that look very predatory cat-like, and now her body is gold. And you can see this nuanced transformation in her, in Elle Fanning's performance that seems to be gaining a certain amount of confidence here, that she is the center of the spectacle. And yeah, the mountain lion thing is on purpose and is going to continue to grow. So she's flirting with the edges of becoming one of the predatory figures rather than being the prey. And then, yeah, she's going to meet up with Ruby, and they're going to swap numbers. Yes. The one time we see cell phones, or modern technology at all, really, in this film. is Yeah, and that was also very much on purpose. Ruby heads off to a cafe and meets up with Sarah and Gigi, who are really pissed off to hear that that Jesse got to do a photography session with this Jack guy, Jack MacArthur, or whatever the hell his name is, the predatory photographer. And they have a little bit of discussion there. There are some interesting moments like when Gigi says can I hear about your specials to the waitress and Sarah just says you're not gonna eat it what are you talking about but they work so hard to memorize them (laughs) which you know I kind of get that good (laughs) yeah except for she's saying this right in front of the waitress so it's hilariously condescending (laughs) like if you were the waiter and you had this bitch she's like oh I'll hear the specials because you've worked so hard to memorize them. <laughs> You're like, bitch, fine. Oh. But now you have to tell her anyway because it's your goddamn job. So 
It's hilarious. It's super funny. Yeah. Sarah says that Gigi is, she's nearing her expiration date, which is a recurring theme among among models in this movie is them saying like, oh, you're getting too old. You're getting so old now. You're in your late 20s. I think later on someone says, oh, she's 21. She's done. It's over with. And I think it's important to note that both Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee, when they made this, were, I think, 29 yeah, both of them were born in 1987. Elle Fanning, in comparison, was born in 1998. Good lord. So she's 11 years younger, so it is this Yelp. youth that's rising up on their heels. And once again, the makeup department's doing a really great job of just playing down Abby Lee. They have these bags slightly under her eyes. They're... Yeah, there's doing some subtle things that just diminish her a little bit. Yeah. Still super fucking hot, I but mean, they're diminishing her. How a do you make bit. Abby Lee look bad? It's impossible. Meanwhile, they're not trying to diminish Bella Heathcote at all because she is. So instead of being the diminished one, she's more just the self-conscious one that keeps turning to plastic surgery or mm -hmm. whatever she can find to try to race against this decay of time. But she's been keeping up with that, so she's still. Looking like Bella Heathcote. Yeah. How are the couches in this diner, though? Are the couches, like, kind of plain, boring? What are these they things like? They are gold glitter, <laughs> and they're so great. I love them so much. <laughs> they just sparkle. You do love... Commit to the sparkle. Commit to sparkle all the way. <laughs> yes. So they are going to have their little lunch. They're just all going to get coffees. Bella Heathcote's going to have a fruit cup, but that's as much as these... Ladies are going to eat right now because models also because they are vampires. They're, this is not what they want to eat. They have to watch their diets, London. They are models, as you just said. Again, also vampires. Look, enough of the vampire whatever you think is going on here because we've got to get to some underwear models now because we're now in a, a almost literal kettle call situation. I mean, most casting calls like this are referred to as kettle calls because we're now in a very large fluorescent lit room where several models are just sitting around in folding chairs in their underwear waiting to do the model walk for a designer. And from what I could tell, a lot of the women they brought in for this, according to Refn, were very real underwear models who could command $1,000 a day for work and did not go down on their prices. So, assuming they shot this out in one day, every single woman you see in there is worth $1,000. Yeah, it was one of the more expensive things that they had to contend with the shoot. I felt really bad for Refn throughout this commentary because I would say at least 76% of what he talked about was worrying about the price of things. Oh. Like, Figuring out ways to cut costs in this film was his biggest concern. Aww. And that was understandable because he is working on an independently financed budget. And that's just kind of what you have to do. But he also, when this scene popped up, excitedly announced, now we're at the slaughterhouse. Oh, God. And that was the vibe that he wanted to give. Like I said, so, cattle call. So it's <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to uh, set the scene here. It's another really bright white room. No windows, because apparently the set was in the basement of some building that they found in L.A. There's going to be lights everywhere, but it's a very big open space mm. that seemingly just keeps going. And the models are going to be placed in a really cool configuration. It's a really great composition. They're all there in their heels and just bra and panties in beige and black and maybe some white but i think mostly beige and black God, which is it's gotta be so fucking very cold in that room. standard for the modeling industry if you're going to come to an open call to 
come very stripped down in terms of no makeup, right? Hair pulled back, wearing that beige and black. And they are going to get called up one by one to just walk in front of this casting director. Important thing that sticks out is that whereas most of these scenes are going to have Martinez's score over it, very purposefully, this one is going to have no other sound except for the clicking of the high heels as these models walk, which was augmented in post to really give the sense of this cavernous mm. warehouse, slaughterhouse space. Mm. Fun times. Yeah. Fun times. Sarah gets up to do the walk in front of the designer, uh, Roberto Sarno, named after Joseph Sarno, the sexploitation filmmaker from the 60s and 70s. I like that reference. It's cool. Yeah. She does the walk. He doesn't even pay attention. He's busy trying to do some origami with his handkerchief. He just does not give a shit. Sarah goes off the side, very upset, mad at herself. Jesse comes up, says her name, and immediately the designer looks up to her and is just taken, just in awe of Jesse before him in all of her youth and perfection. Oh, you're going to do the walk now? Yeah, I'll do the walk. She does the walk, and he is enraptured by what he yes. sees. Not necessarily enraptured in a sexual way. It really, I don't really know. This guy doesn't come off like he's, you know, leering or lusting after Jesse. It very much is as if this is a spiritual fulfillment to him to watch her do the model walk. Yeah, it's that fairy tale space. He's just captivated. She has that it factor. In a bathroom, Sarah stares at herself and is just upset with herself, upset at the way things are going. Jesse comes in to check things out. Because she's been denied, and Jesse yeah. automatically booked, yeah. and Sarah was just brutally dismissed, Ugh, brutally rough. rebuffed. And so Jesse goes into the bathroom to check on Sarah and say, hey, hi, how you doing? And Sarah just stares at her and just asks, what's it like to just walk into a room that's in winter and to know you're the sunshine? And we do see that that gestation of narcissism starting to peak a little bit in Jesse because she says, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah, it is. She knows. She knows she walks into a room in the middle of winter and all eyes gravitate towards her like she's the sun. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. That's intense. Yeah. Sarah's done with that mirror, though. Sarah just says, this mirror can go fuck itself. And she breaks the mirror. And yeah, she throws shit at it. It shatters. It's hardcore. Jesse stumbles a little bit, cuts herself on the broken glass. And Sarah looks at it longingly and then latches on and starts sucking that blood down. You know why? Because vampires. She's losing it, London. She's losing her mind. She's in a very mentally unstable place. So you're going to do she crazy shit. Blood. It's got nothing to do with being a vampire. It's just she's she's she's, she's not so. It's she's a, hungry, she's fading, she wants to drink that it factor down, which is in the blood. The neon demon is she in is her blood. She's very crazy, yes. Not a vampire, she's just she's just like losing her mind. She's in a, in a very bad spot. This is her life that's shattering before her eyes, much like that mirror did. And yeah, you do crazy things in times like that. Like, try to drink blood. Not because you're a vampire, just because, you know, life sucks. Mm-hmm. 
A mausoleum exists. A mausoleum does exist. That is our next scene. Ruby is walking through it. And this turns out to be the Forever Hollywood Cemetery that we last saw in I Woke Up Early the Day I Died. So another fun, like we revisit Echo Park, revisit another location from one of our past episodes. I mean, you do movies that are based in L.A., that's going to happen. What do you so, like, so many locations, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out Ruby works as, I guess, she does makeup for the corpses to make them look good for open casket funerals is what she goes yeah, into. Um, which some makeup artists actually will pick up some extra work doing reconstruction makeup on the yeah. dead. Less awkward conversations with Ruby the people you put makeup fits on. fits this bill more than others because she's all into that macabre dead stuff because vampire... But because she's yeah hanging out in this real morgue. There's a <laughs> shot of the real mortician over in the corner working on somebody. None of the no actual corpses are in this scene, but the actual mortician is going to be in this room. Oh, nice cameo! And apparently, Refn had to sign a whole bunch of papers that if they used the space, they would have to vacate immediately if somebody died and the room was needed. So they were always on the precipice yeah. of having to vacate, but they didn't have to. There's Yeah, from what I understand, there's another scene later on from the movie that they had to film like at the same time as this one. So it was like the yeah. one lapse in the film sequentially method they were going for just because they didn't have this location for very long. Then we cut to Jesse at the motel, but she is trying to keep an eye on the manager because she owes him money for damages for everything and waits until he's not looking, runs up to her room and pours, I guess, some hydrogen peroxide or alcohol on her arm. And it's bubbling. It's because cuts and everything freaks out a little bit. Dean also brings her flowers, which she picks up and faints because her arm is in terrible pain. Yeah, because this glass is still wedged in there yeah. from the bathroom mirror. Fun effects note, this is really easy to do. Mm-hmm. What you do is you put some baking soda into the prosthetic wound, and then you pour vinegar on it instead of alcohol, and oh, it'll fizz like nice. that. So that's I what's happening that. there in that shot. Yeah, I, 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 that's fun. like you know the in like high school movie effects style stuff. I love shit like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and that's what they're doing in this scene because well, it has that exact same little fizz. It's like, I know what they're doing there. Very cool. Well, yes, but Jesse has passed out and briefly we start to see symbols appearing before us. We see this set of three triangles, equilateral blue triangles, upside down lines are in neon colors, neon blue. And also some hands seem to be coming through the wall of her motel room briefly before she snaps back to reality. But it's as if there's a vision happening there and something being born coming to fruition. Yeah, this is where shit starts to get real weird. So according to Refid... Because it's been very lucid prior to this. <laughs> so this is where a lot of people have different interpretations of the symbology of the triangles and of the grasping hands. I would say they're all valid because, you know, symbols do have a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. For Refn specifically, what these are, this seemed a little strange to me, actually. I feel like there were other symbology analyses that made more sense than Refn's, but whatever. So for Refn, these triangles, the upright and the reversed, are man and woman. And I'm like, okay, whatever, bro. Sure. (laughs) Whatever. Whatever. And that the hands are the womb. Something is trying to be born inside of it and that's that imagery for him so once again we're getting to this gestation we're getting to the sex Mm -hmm. for other options for triangle symbology we talked about this a little bit on beyond the black rainbow as well this idea of the triangle in terms of perfection so the triangle is seen in different 
cultures and folklore as this very perfect symbol. And so striving for that perfection tends to be a thing, as well as trinities tend to come in these threes. And so there's a lot of different stuff. But what does seem to be happening here for Refn, or according to Refn, is that the neon demon is it's gestating a little bit further Mm -hmm. and it is tapping at jesse wanting to come out and this birth imagery is reinforced when she's going to awaken having been set on the bed and she's wearing this white dress and her bloody palm has at some point gotten on her dress in a way that looks like kind of gross afterbirth scenes where somebody gives oh. birth on a bed and the blood is on the dress and stuff. Mm. So she has this bloody dress around her pelvic area. and So this thing is starting to push out, I guess. Gross. Yeah. Well, after Dean has tended to Jesse, he wants to help her out because, you know, she's got a, like, a little money buying going on at the hotel. So he goes down to see the manager. So we get another scene with Keanu Reeves as this hotel manager. Holy shit, I love every moment of this. If you're into these young gals, you got to see the action in 214. I get some girls coming in here all the time, man. She's young, 13 years old. And then he says the greatest line of the movie because, of course, the greatest line of the movie is delivered by Keanu Reeves. Real Lolita shit. Real Lolita shit. I love that he states real Lolita shit and then really feeling that he hasn't gotten his point across. He's like, I'm sorry, let me reiterate this to you, Dean. Real Lolita shit. Fuck yeah. And look, he, he, the manager probably knows Jesse is underage. She's, he knows that she's 16. Well, because he says that Jesse is hard candy. And oh, yeah. <laughs> this runaway chick is some real Lolita shit. So, really, this chick's maybe a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible. Maybe mm. we'll give it up a little bit easier. And we've already seen that Keanu Reeves' character is very predatory in a way that he knows exactly which room Jesse's in. When she shows up, he's like, oh, yeah. 212, right? So, he knows where all of the young women are and where they're staying. There's also crime scene tape around this motel, which is interesting. We we never addressed what crime was there, but this is a dangerous, shady area within the realm of this movie. It is a house of ill repute, London. As Dean is walking away, Keanu Reeves is going to reinforce room 214. Gotta be seen. Oh, <laughs> then he no. goes back in, which apparently was oh. one of many lines that Keanu Reeves just like sh- threw out there. Like he was just saying shit on this set. So Dean is gonna go back up, having gotten this helpful information, <laughs> to remove the glass from Jesse's arm. Meanwhile, or afterwards, After much later, this, we're now Jesse in a makeup, yes, we're now in a makeup is room. going to have been cast in a show. Yes. And Gigi is also in the show. Yes. Sarah is not, interestingly uh, enough. Poor Sarah. As Gigi is walking through this area with like all the makeup tables and the makeup mirrors with those lights, this is where we get to start to see a lot of those awesome anamorphic flares I was talking about earlier because there are all these beautiful white streaks going across the screen as Gigi moves through it. And yes, the, she sees that Jesse... This asshole is in her chair. How dare she? She's like, yeah, you're in my fucking chair, Jesse. Hop up. Jesse moves away, and they begin to chat a little bit. They're going to have this little discussion back and forth that is very passive-aggressive. We see that Jesse is becoming... She's letting that neon demon out a little bit more. She's got a little bit more bite to her. And 
further insulting Gigi's pursuit of beauty through her Mm -hmm. plastic surgery. Yeah. And then we get a messenger who comes to pull Jesse back to the backstage. She's led through this very cool corridor of dresses and models to meet the designer who just turns to her and says, you're going to close the show. (laughs) And she's so happy about that because... Uh, Yeah. Here she hasn't even had to work for it, right? She's arrived in L.A. The model agent is saying, yeah, you're going to be great. Lots of girls want to be models. Most of Mm -hmm. them aren't going to cut it, but you, you're going to be great. We have people just falling in love with her, getting her test shots for free, and now she's just going to close this show on her very first runway show. So fairy tale stuff just making this neon demon manifest. Yes, it's a black void. All the models are looking to the right, and the camera is moving towards the left. Flashes are going off, and we just see random models. And then we see Gigi. What does Gigi do? It's really great, because Gigi just turns around to look back at Jesse in the back. And it's a really great kind of character moment, almost, because you can tell her jealousy. Everyone else is in the zone, and all Gigi can think about is Jesse coming up behind her, ready to stab her in the back and take the spotlight. Mm. And she's very self-conscious about it, that and bitch. she looks That's very nice. distressed about it. So I have seen a lot of criticisms about this movie and the shallowness of the characters, and I would really uh, disagree with that and push back on it because yeah. the performances here are very, very subtle, but there really isn't anything that shallow about crippling insecurity. Right. <laughs> and that's what Gigi <laughs> is experiencing here. And it, yeah, she is, I think, a very universally understandable character. And so, yeah, I don't really know where that criticism comes from. Well, I do kind of know where that criticism comes from because people often think that movies that are about narcissism have to be shallow. And that's their problem, not this film's problem. <laughs> now, she's going to, yeah, close the show and we're going to get this amazing, weird, trippy happening. She's walking down this long passage and she's going to come to the blue triangle and it's going to turn red. And from that moment, in Refn's words, we enter a certain alternate reality space in which the neon demon has fully taken over from here on out. Jessie sees herself in the blue triangle, surrounded by mirrors, kissing herself. And yeah, this is going to harken back a little bit to the Greek myth of Narcissus. And Narcissus we're also going to talk about in a little bit here. But one of the big things of Narcissus was he was so into his own reflection. He came upon a pool and he stared at his own reflection and realized that nothing would ever compare to himself. And so he fell so deeply in love with himself that he could never leave that reflection. And he's going to die that way (laughs) because he's just going to perish because he can't stop looking at himself. And he's going to try to, in certain versions, he tries to kiss himself in the water and whatnot. And Uh. so her kissing herself in this mirror here is actually really great on that level, too, other than just being totally baller. And then she's going to, after she does this cool little, like, make out with herself, looks super hot moment, she's going to turn around and she's going to exit. Now fully, formally, the neon demon. She's going to do that while walking on a treadmill. Oh. I mean, that's what's happening effects-wise. Is, and you can kind of tell, because nice. we actually are just getting from the shoulders up, but you can mm. tell she's walking with this very otherworldly movement for a runway, and that's because she's on a treadmill, going very slow in mm. high heels. 
And yeah, now we have entered the world as the narcissist sees it. After this, well, magically, her hair is also different. She emerges through golden curtains. Golden curtains, not unlike the strands of her hair now, because her hair has changed up a little bit. She finds Dean, takes her into a restaurant dining area to meet Gigi, another model, and the designer. As they walk up, I swear to God, Gigi licks her lips, looking at them. That's pretty yeah. intense. Because she's hungry and a vampire. <laughs> no, she's just hungry, London. She's a model. She hasn't had anything to eat all day because she had to be, you know, ready for the show. It, oh, God, your obsession here is crazy. But what's really fa- fascinating to me about this entire bit is that the Robert Sarno is reciting some lines from Henry V. As they're walking up, he says... Let pry through the portage of the head like the brass cannon. Let the... And gets interrupted. And Dean introduces himself. He says something really shitty like, Did you say your name was Bean? No, no, Dean. Oh, Dean. Okay, great. Well, yes, uh, join us. Uh, anyway. Now set the teeth and stretch the nostril wide. Hold hard the breath and bend up every spear to his full height. On, on. <laughs> and you know, so on and so forth. Which is funny to me because there's a lot more of the speech there, but what are you going to do? I just kind of found this a little fascinating because the speech that he's drawing from here is from Henry V. It's the Once More Upon the Breach uh, monologue that Henry has. This is from Act 3, Scene 1 of the play, Henry V, and it's dramatizing Henry giving a speech to his troops right before their, the siege of, Arf- of Harfleur, which was part of Henry's campaign in France during the Hundred Years' War. It's just interesting to me that they go with this speech and these lines because the play Henry V is imbued with a lot of patriotism and romanticism about England's kings. It was written in 1599 by Shakespeare, and only a decade prior, the English had defeated the Spanish Armada. Considered one of the greatest military upsets of all time, the English were very full of themselves when Shakespeare wrote this. (laughs) But it's interesting to me that through this, we have... This designer, Robert Sarno, whose life is full of pomp and circumstance, reciting lines that themselves are full of pomp and circumstance. But when you remove the reality of both Robert Sarno, who is a designer who is leading many women to an early demise through the very predatory and ultra-competitive world of fashion, he is reciting lines that were meant to be spoken by a man who, in reality, was leading thousands of English soldiers to their early demise for the sake of his own ego. So there are just layers upon layers here that are very fascinating to me. And I just like that. That's a nice little touch. I don't know how intentional that was, but it can be read that way, that this is just Mm -hmm. an extension of pomp and circumstance to hide the fact that we live in a horrible world where this man will lead you to an early grave. And this guy is pomp and circumstance across the board because he's going to have such amazing douchey follow-up lines like performance for me is easy because i'm a creator <laughs> it just moves through me whether it's, like, it's you know you're, oh when you're God, creating you an outfit or a design you know you just understand you speak through that character like oh i i want to tell you to fuck off but i've kind of thought that way myself before and also i myself have spontaneously 
spoken monologues from this play. Henry V is just full. Because you were a douche that's just full of pomp and circumstance. So the point still stands. I, now, when we first saw this, I believe you just called this guy the ghost of my Christmas future or something like that. It <laughs> sounds like something I would say, and I stick by that past me. This does seem like the ghost of your Christmas future. And yet, to me, compliment. So what are you going to do? <laughs> that, that is the problem, yes. Now, we have within this scene, once again, we're just going to bring poor Gigi down for no God reason. Damn it, this Gigi. asshole's going to turn around and he's going to talk about how hot Jesse's looking because she's all natural and shit. And then he has Dean say like, yeah, take, you know, Gigi here, for example. Do you think she's hot? Do you think she's beautiful? And Dean's like, I mean, she's... She- this is really awkward, man, because I'm on a date here and you're asking me to evaluate this other woman. He's like, just answer the question. Uh, she's fine. <laughs> fine, fine. Yes, that's exactly the word I was looking for. Fine. I'm like, you asshole, you know the word fine. You just recited four lines of Shakespeare. Like, you're just uh, being a dick. Good lord. And for no reason, because poor Gigi has her little heart crushed because here she's been fairly proud of all the work she's put into her body. Mm-hmm. And now she's being told... This artificial cosmetic shit, like, that's no good. We just want the natural beauty, the effortless beauty. There's also kind of an overlap in the fashion industry that supports this, that there was for a little while a little bit more of this celebration of plastic surgery. And then there became this new standard of naturalism and Mm -hmm. whatnot. And so this actually does track these two different discourses. But really, he's just being a dick here. Then we have this other challenge of poor Dean is the only one that's going to stick up for Gigi. Like, (laughs) I think beauty is what's on the inside or whatnot. And little Shakespeare pompous fashion (laughs) dude is going to say, yeah, you say that, but you're actually a hypocritical asshole because you see that girl you're with right now. I doubt you would have looked twice at her if she wasn't beautiful. You might be saying that you're looking for beauty on the inside, Uh but you're with this chick and... How did you meet her in the first place, right? Looking for beautiful chicks to photograph. So step off your high horse. And this is where Ruffin is going to say that, in a way, what he sees with this scene is indeed pointing out some of the hypocrisy, not only of the people in the scene, but what will ultimately be the audience that does probably complain about this movie of being a celebration of narcissism and beauty, and yet... Those same people, a lot of them probably are this Dean character that wants to critique the fact that we have a movie that's about the obsession of beauty when they're probably not any better. (laughs) They probably also have had big parts of their life dictated by aesthetics. And his direct quote was, we're not political. We're not here to prove a point. We're not taking sides. Narcissism simply is, right? Beauty simply is. Uh, It is a construction and everyone participates and reinforces it. Yeah. So it's just like, hey, this is how we're stating it. Like, this is just the way that it is. These people are beautiful and people are going to react to that positively, negatively, one way or the other, right? There's going to be a reaction. Well, all of this talk has got Dean upset. So he decides, you know what? I'm better than this. I'm going to go. Hey, Jesse, I want to go. And Jesse just says, then go. Oh, shit. She's a baller bitch now. She's sitting there Mm -hmm. laid back. Her hair is this curtain in front of her face. She's glaring out from under it. She's rotating her 
ankles so that the high heel on her foot is really sticking out. Uh-huh. She is full-on neon demon mode right now. Yeah. She's hot and she knows it. Demon is out. Back at the motel, they're going to break up officially and she's mm-hmm. going to go to her room and she's just going to feel herself all over her body. It's going to be a cool shot because we don't get her head. We just get her on the bed, kicking up one leg, then the other. The heels are in the frame and then she makes her hands into these little claws and rakes them over her legs as she lays back on the bed and according to Elle Fanning in the commentary she's like see now she's the mountain lion in the room ah, I was like, ah nice Fanning nice Elle gets so, it. She gets, she's on top of things yeah so in a way it, this weird mountain lion moment becomes a certain type of fairy tale like omen or harbinger of what's to come in terms of what she is going to rise to be in a certain way, as well as the type of predatory, wild, savage competition that she's going to have to protect herself from, right? This wild jungle of consumption. Because animals, they don't give a fuck, right, about (laughs) certain limits and restrictions. If they feel competition coming at them, they're they're just going to tear it apart, you know? Yeah. They're going to eat it. That's how she does. But now it's time for the one, one of the most important moments in the movie. And that's when the hotel manager comes out, looks up at the room, takes a drag of a cigarette, and that's it. Yeah, it goes back inside. Apparently, <laughs> since this whole thing shot in sequence, they brought out Reeves to just come and light a cigarette real quick and go back. And, like, you're going to be in the next scene in... Why not just shoot things the same day? I don't know. But apparently, like, you know, Reeves committed. He was committed to sparkle motion uh, in a big way for this movie. He does just seem great. Now, Jessie is going to fall asleep on the bed while she's being the the mountain lion in the room. Mm. And she's going to have a dream. And Keanu Reeves is going to be in this dream. It's not obvious this is a dream at first, but it is a dream. We just want to say that because this is a fucked up scene that takes place. Yes. Reeves using his manager's key comes into her room, walks over to her bed, leers down at her while she is, we assume, asleep, or maybe she wants him to think she's asleep, and takes out a knife, brings the knife down, scrapes her face a little bit with it, puts the knife down into her mouth, and says, wider. Yeah, she wakes up choking on this knife as he's forcing her to throat fillet it. Yeah, it's an image. The sound is really working Mm. here, which apparently was created by taking a knife and rubbing it and banging it on the inside of a wine bottle is how we're getting that sound (sighs) of the knife hitting against her teeth here. This was a metal but unsharpened knife that they used on set. They Mm. had a couple of different lengths that they were going to use and while Keanu put this knife down Elle's throat, apparently did not end up using the different lengths, just used the one. So this was another way in which Elle can not blink, not breathe. She can also sword swallow. Hey, she's got talent, this kid. She might be. I'm going to use the sword swallowing metaphor because she's 16 in this scene, but whatever. Uh, Elle Fanning, you watch her. She's going places, man. She might be going places. This was another thing that Elle Fanning seemed kind of like a rad chick because as she was recalling the scene, she's like, oh, poor Keanu Reeves. His hands were shaking so much. Aww. I remember his hands were just shaking. I think he was nervous because he didn't want to hurt me. And I guess it is kind of a weird thing to do to someone. Although, like, I don't know. I thought it was kind of fun. I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> nice. Fuck. Yeah, Elle Fanning. So, yeah, she's she's got a little wild streak Aww. in her. She liked being... 
on the receiving end of that whole business. Yes. But she wakes up. So from she this has dream. this premonition dream that he is a predator. He's coming mm. for her. this is like the neon demon looking out for her. You yeah. know, the neon demon knows that everybody wants to do her and will take what they want. Right as she wakes up, her door is going to start to rattle a little bit. Somebody's trying to break in. So it does seem like a strangely premonition-ish dream. She's going to manage to jump up and deadbolt the door just in time. And so we are going to get another really horrifying scene, mostly through sound. As whoever's trying to break into her room, we assume it's Keanu Reeves' character because we Mm -hmm. just saw the dream. But I'm not sure we actually ever get that visually confirmed in any way. We just hear someone go and break into the room next door, which we've been told is the 13-year-old runaway, who's some real Lolita shit, get invaded and then just uh, brutally raped yeah. on the other side of this wall as Jesse presses her ear up to the wall and just listens. And the movie does not hold back on the sound at all. You hear the screams and the fighting as this happens, and it is as legitimately terrifying as it should be. And the thing that's interesting here is... In a second, she's going to call Ruby and ask her if she can come over. So she has a phone. She's not going to call the cops. Oh, Jesse. She's not going to call any sort of backup for the other girl. Oh. I don't think that's necessarily an oversight here. I think this is a moment, once again, of this really interesting self-focused narcissism that has fully taken over Jesse because Jesse is not thinking about anybody else but herself because the entire theme of this film is so far building to this idea that you have yourself and you have competition Mm. and you have the things that you can throw under the bus to save yourself (laughs) and that seems to be what's happening here is it's she redirects the threat to another woman. And it's very disturbing. And there's a lot of horror there already in terms of the predatory nature towards this young woman's body. But then just also the lack of help or aid from anybody else is going to be another layer of horror. So Keanu Reeves in an interview I found really interesting is going to be asked by the interview. And this is while they were still in filming, so they hadn't finished yet. And the interviewer is going to ask, So, Keanu, are you a violent man in this film, as far as you can say? Um, yes. What can you tell us about your character? I'm a motel manager, yeah, so I'm kind of uh, Elle's character. Jesse uh, stays in the motel, and I'm the lord, I mean, the manager. So I'm kind of like a witness to a certain section. I'm a gatekeeper. I'm someone to get past. I'm someone who has his own way of doing things. Almost in a weird way, Jesse kind of sharpens herself. Her character is revealed by being challenged, I think, to a, a, a certain extent by my character. So it's not like a mentor-protege relationship? It depends on how deeply you want to take that. If your greatest enemy is your greatest teacher, then I'm probably ninth grade. I was like, wait, what? I love that ends it. Ninth grade, huh? Okay. I was like, so you're the ninth grade. That's what you're playing in this movie, is you're playing the ninth grade. In a way that weirdly makes a certain amount of sense to me, but also what we get from this is... I do find that it's interesting that he thinks of himself as a gatekeeper in this movie, especially since 
as we've set up, this is largely a fairy tale that also draws from a lot of mythology. Mm. So thinking of this as a very bizarre type of hero's journey that <laughs> starts with an onset and has these gatekeepers that are oh. going to mold and change our young orphan into different things is an interesting one. She's just being molded and changed in ways that we don't generally see in a hero's tale, right? This is something else. She's coming across different gatekeepers that are molding her into mm. a different type of heroine, a neon demon, as it were. He's one of the gatekeepers that is going to unlock the neon demon. Okay, uh, uh, okay, 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 okay. I allow it, I allow it, yes. Ruby has Jesse come over. She has her sneak out and come over to this giant mansion of a house. What a place this is. Yeah, this is the Paramore Estate oh, in course. Los Angeles. It's up near Silver Lake. You can book rooms there for about 1300 a night. Oh, is that all? Yeah. Oh. The people who own the Paramore also own that gold couch diner. So I guess oh, nice. Refin apparently got a package deal to film oh, in both was, of those uh, locations. Good, good, good with the Paramore crowd, I guess. <laughs> That's nice. This Paramore estate is going to have a lot of really lush color tones in it that really fit into the movie very, very well. They're also going to have all of these stuffed taxidermied animals all over the place, which oh. apparently were just there. So okay. that also fits into the theme really, really well. Okay. But Jesse shows up at this house. Ruby's going to explain that she's house-sitting, and uh, she's going to do that really awkwardly. Oh, I'm, I'm uh, house-sitting. Okay, that's a strange thing that you would need to say awkwardly, but okay. Yeah, because part of this question, I think, for her is how does this makeup artist just afford this incredibly deluxe sprawling mansion in Los Angeles? I have a theory about this house, okay. but yeah, this is one of the times we are going to put a pin in this theory because it's going to come back around to when I talk about Ruby and the vampire that she is later. I but God, again with the vampire bullshit. Whatever. Anyway, Ruby starts brushing Jesse's hair in a bedroom to relax her and Jesse just thinks Ruby is the best. Ruby thinks, you know, likewise about Jesse. And, she, you know, Ruby, she's like, you know what? Fortune favors the bold. Let's do this thing. Moves in on Jesse. And Jesse says, no. Whoa. No, not, not cool. Sorry. I'm a virgin. Earlier in the film, when Sarah asks, who are you fucking? Do you fuck men? Jesse says, yeah, all the time. Of course, Ruby starts to get aggressive, starts trying to really go for it. And Jesse has to like kick her off the bed. Just get the fuck off me. No, not happening. Well, now we know that Jesse, as she was asked earlier, are you sex or are you food? She's, she's not sex. We know that much now. Yeah. So that leaves only one other option. If you're not sex, you got to be food. Which is a really fun setup <laughs> that is now going to pay off here shortly. Well, Jenna Ruby draws two X's in a circle in the mirror. There's a really great lighting cue where as she draws the circle around this crude face, the background suddenly goes full red behind her. It's actually, it's a very cool, subtle lighting uh, setup. Yeah, it's way more subtle than it sounds verbally. Yeah. <laughs> you have to look for it. It's cool. The thing that's interesting, she's drawing these X's over her face with the lipstick. And I don't think that this was on purpose because Refn doesn't bring it up anywhere that I've seen or in the commentary. But one of the things that often happens with plastic surgeons 
is that they will mark up the body oh, in yeah. certain X's, often with eyeliner pencils or whatever. But huh? lipstick is one of the things that they oh, will often use. Interesting. And yeah. So with these little, yeah, in a similar kind of X pattern. So it really evoked for me once again this plastic surgery feel of I don't like what I'm looking at and I need to fix and change it in some way. What Refn is going to say in the commentary, however, is that this is the moment that Ruby becomes the true protagonist. And I'm like, wait, really? Um, <laughs> I don't see. <laughs> I don't really know. This is the kind of movie where you can easily apply labels like protagonist or antagonist or sidekick or comic relief. I think you can. Like, I think the neon demon is the protagonist we're supposed to root for. Like, not Jesse, not Ruby, not Sarah. Well, it's like, very it's abstract. Narcissism entity. is the hero yeah. of the story. <laughs> but. Yeah, it seemed weird for me that Refn, for him, this was the character that he wanted to start turning around and focusing on because he thought that she was more sympathetic after pouting, after trying to force herself on some chick. Like, I don't know if that's really... Well, we have a moment in the next scene where Ruby is going to work on another corpse. And Refn has said that they filmed this very early on because they only had to look access that location for a short amount of time but because of what Jenna Malone was doing in this scene that made him think okay actually we're going to focus on her much later in the film I guess because this next scene boy this next scene is a scene where boy boy some things happen here in this next scene Ruby goes back to her work as a mortician is putting makeup on a much younger corpse and begins to remove the coverings of this corpse. Well, and, by a much younger corpse, we mean a woman who seems to be in her 30s. Right, right. This is not the corpse of a child. Right, 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 yes. A, a grown, a, a woman who would have been in her 30s before she passed, yes, is touching this corpse and is now thinking of Jesse reclining on a couch looking very seductive and begins to make out with the corpse, spits in the corpse's mouth, grabs the corpse's breasts, gets on top of the corpse, squats over it, reaches down, and begins to masturbate herself. Oh, yeah, we got some corpse fucking. We get, finally, it's 31 episodes in, and we finally got to a movie with some goddamn corpse fucking. Yes, I... It seems like we watch movies a lot more outside this podcast that feature corpse fucking, just in our free time, so I'm just surprised it took us this long to get to a movie. The thing is, so I guessed on our friend's... Robbie and Michael's podcast, K-Bay, often love to go over and hang out with those guys and talk about Korean dramas. But it became a thing after the first one I was ever on that corpse fucking came up. And then it became like my brand on K-Bay to make (laughs) sure I bring up corpse fucking every single episode that I'm on. We have brought some authenticity to that brand today, folks, because right here we got some good old fashioned American corpse fucking happening. Yeah, so if you want to hear people talk about Korean <laughs> dramas and or corpse fucking, go check out K-Bay. Oh. But, uh, yeah, so I feel like finally I'm like, hey, finally, corpse fucking. <laughs> it's a strange Actual thing to be excited about, corpse but fucking. we got our reasons. <laughs> yeah, so she's going to corpse, or she's going to fuck this corpse. And she's going to do it in this really loving, longing manner. It actually is kind of touching and heartbreaking a little bit at the same time. I don't know. She is doing a whole lot of stuff with her performance. Yeah. I've never seen anybody go quite that just emotionally invested into 
fucking a fake corpse. But what is also interesting is in the script, apparently, it just said that Ruby is going to lean forward and kiss the body. Oh, well. Everything else is just Jenna Malone (laughs) going for it, which is kind of hilarious and great. I don't know if the actress that is playing the corpse fully knew where Jenna Malone was going to go with it, So, but she does a a decent job of staying still. Yeah. There's some really good body makeup, dead body makeup on her, so Mm -hmm. it's all working. And back at the house, Jessie is putting on all the glitter makeup. She's putting on a nice blue dress because she just loves looking at herself in the mirror now, really checking herself out. And really prior to that transformation moment that we see earlier in the film, Jessie was never really looking in mirrors all that much compared to the other models. They were constantly looking in the mirrors, but I don't really think there's a moment where Jessie stops to look at herself. But after that blue to red sequence yeah now she is like all about mirrors which is what's going on in this sequence we get her reflection a lot so when she's forging those documents of her parents where we Mm -hmm. get the full shot but yeah she's not gazing in the mirror while she's doing that we get her right before the runway show looking at Gigi and her face is reflected in the mirror, but she's not looking directly at her face. Right. So yeah, that's true. It's once she does have the neon demon, now she can't stop looking at herself. She's gone full on narcissus, right? She's looking into that reflection. She can't look away. Speaking of narcissus, <laughs> she is going to walk outside. So she's doing this whole dollhouse thing, this uber narcissism playground, just playing dress up in this big luxurious house. It's just celebrating decadence and finery. She goes outside and she finds a drained pool and she's going to go out on the diving board. So once again, Narcissus likes to look at himself in the reflection of pools. Mm -hmm. But now we have her looking literally into a pool, but there's no water there to reflect back at her. So for all we know, she's just full on like hallucinating what she sees. I don't know. But she's hanging out at the end of this diving board. The L.A. skyline is behind her. Oh, it's looks, a beautiful looks shot. Looks great, yeah. Ruby's going to walk up, and she's going to come into this pool, and we're going to get the shot from below up at Jessie, who just looks like she's just floating there like this weird twilight angel because the blue of the dress is matching with the dusk and the trees and it's all very cool as a visible shot and she's bouncing a little bit on this board flirting with this invincible feeling she has of immortality and she gives this really great speech to ruby that's where she basically says that. Women everywhere will pluck themselves, go under surgeries, do horrific things to their bodies, all for a shot at looking like a second-rate version of Jessie. Yeah. She's like, yeah, here's the deal. My mother used to tell me I was a dangerous girl. And you know what I am? I'm a dangerous girl. She's just fully embracing. Is truly full of herself. And... After that, goes inside, and hey, there's Gigi. Also, Sarah is there, too. Jesse just says, are we having a party? What's going on here? Yeah, Ruby just smiles at her after Uh she makes this declaration, lets her go into the house. 
and yeah, these <laughs> these models we they're gonna, gonna go a little feral. They're gonna go a little crazy. They're gonna chase her down. They're gonna chase her through the house. Yeah. <laughs> they chase her down. She hurts herself at one point. The ending of the chase I do love is Sarah has this gigantic machete and isn't even running after her. She's just walking briskly because she knows that Jesse cannot move much faster. And then finally she's cornered by the pool by all three of them. There's this gorgeous shot of Jenna Malone where Ruby is walking and smirking at Jesse as she gets closer and closer to her. Jesse is scared as hell, doesn't know what's going on, and Ruby just pushes her into the pool. Thud. Down she goes. Yeah, she goes down. Immediately. As she's contorted on the bottom of this pool on the cement, and the blood is just spilling from her skull out around her. Ella's going to happily declare, this was my dying mermaid fish moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to put it, because it does kind of have that vibe. She's convulsing. She's jerking around. She has just enough time left in her to turn her head and blurrily see these three women coming down into the pool and walking up towards her. And this is where we're going to really now talk about Narcissus a little bit more. Tell me about this fellow Narcissus. So one of the main myths from Ovid's Metamorphosis that is associated with Narcissus is actually with Narcissus and Echo. And Echo is going to be another nymph who falls in love with Narcissus. But for random other reasons that have to do with pissing Juno off, because most things have to do with pissing Juno off, Mm. Echo's already been cursed to only be able to verbally echo people's words instead of have her own and so she pursues narcissus but only ever like echoing back to him he's intrigued right and he's like we must be together and echo's like yeah we must be together or whatever and then at some point she's gonna find him in the woods and he's appalled by her because she's not him oh (laughs) so he spurns her and exclaims hands off may i die before you enjoy my body because he's he's kind of a dick (laughs) and all poor echo could whisper in reply was enjoy my body which humiliates her and she runs off all sad and ashamed now we have seen this a little bit with our neon demon characters in the earlier scene with Ruby, as she mm. has tried to advance on Narcissus, the neon demon, having thought that that's what they were there to do. And then Narcissus is going to reject her and she's going to be all humiliated and shamed and she's going to go run off. Despite the harshness of this rejection, right? Echo's love is only going to grow for Narcissus. And the verbiage here in the stories when narcissus died wasting away before his own reflection consumed by a love that could not be echo mourned over his body when narcissus looking one last time in the pool uttered oh marvelous boy i loved you in vain farewell echo too is gonna chorus farewell (laughs) and we have this moment here of Narcissus dying in the pool because he could not step away from his own narcissism, which is happening with our Jesse character, right? She is dying literally in the pool after accusing Ruby's character and the other women like her that have sort of bittersweet admired her beauty that they will only ever be second rate 
versions and or echoes mm. of her own beauty, right? Um, and so it's a really cool reworking here of the Narcissus and Echo myth where she has, yeah, become too narcissistic, rejected everything else, accused them all of being mere echoes, and then she's going to die in this pool. And Ruby is still going to feel a certain attraction or love for her, but that love has shifted to something a little bit other since food or sex or food are on the table so she can't show her love through sex so we're gonna just out of we're nowhere. gonna go to the food option and this is where the film gets really weird for a lot of people again totally <laughs> lucid prior to this but now this is where a lot of people said whoa wait a minute what's going on here so cut to ruby in a bathtub covered in blood a bathtub of blood. A bathtub. Covered in blood. Covered in blood. And <laughs> also, Gigi and Sarah are in the shower rinsing off blood. Not only rinsing off blood, but really licking themselves as well, because they themselves are covered in blood as well. We have to assume it's Jesse's blood. Yeah. Because we don't it's... see Jesse anymore. Yeah, because Jesse's not there. We just saw Jesse bleeding out in a pool. Now they seem to have a whole bunch of blood. And Ruby is, as she's chilling in this blood, there's a lot of glitter mixed into the blood, sort of like there was in Lost Boys. So oh, she yeah. is glistening, and it's catching that camera. These other women who are taking the shower, Sarah and Gigi, it's going to be in this really great twilight-lit shower. There's a lavender light coming mm. from inside the shower. Mm -hmm. It is gorgeous. It is contrasting that blood that is just pouring down them as they shower in this very sensual way. Ruffin's going to point out that the triangles are back because as they're showering, they have their legs open in a very specific way to create that triangular shape, both of them. So triangles oh. are a big thing okay. for Ruffin throughout this Did movie. Did not catch that at all. <laughs> now comes the time that we can finally talk about these goddamn vampires. You know, I'm starting to think there are vampires in this movie. <laughs> finally on board, are you, Benji? I might be willing to get on board with Sparkle Motion on this vampire thing. This bloody, is... bloody Sparkle Motion. Yeah. Because, uh... yeah, these are some goddamn vampires. <laughs> and it's taken until, like, the last 15 minutes of the movie to fully confirm this. But to its credit, it has kind of told us this all along because they have been thirsty for that blood from the beginning. But, all right. So... What is happening here is mm -hmm. a couple of really cool pieces of vampire folklore. And this is going to start with a specific woman who was a historical woman in parts, but she's going to be mythologized a lot more than she ever was in actual life. But so there is a woman named the Countess de Bathroy. She is a or she was a woman in the 16th century. She was Hungarian and came from a lot of different royal bloodlines and was high up in society and politics and whatnot. I'm not going to go into a lot of details about her because the important things about this woman were that at some point she is going to be accused by local villagers or members of the city as well as other people in the higher up society of being a bit of a serial killer. They're going to point out, so here's the thing. A lot of young women have gone missing and or ended up dead. And they ended up dead after coming to stay with you in your palace. <laughs> <laughs> 
this might be a problem. Uh, yeah. At some point, they are going to charge her with murder of a whole bunch of people. There's going to be a trial. They're going to have about like 300 witness accounts or something like that that spoke up. There is also a possibility that a lot of this was some sort of conspiracy against the Countess. So it's a little murky historically, but as the legends continue to go, there were some bodies that were able to be produced. They Mm. were mutilated, they were tortured, Mm. and they did seem to be blamed on the Countess. She had some servants and some henchmen that also got prosecuted with her for helping her. And she seemed to, yeah, like to kill young women. And it also seemed that as long as she didn't kill the daughters of the other nobles that knew her, people kind of chilled to look the other way about it for a little while until she started killing the wrong young women. And then, yeah, she got real. So as the legend of this serial killing grew, the tales associated with it turned very vampiric. And she is one of the first figures that really become a solidifying vampire figure in lore. Because one of the things that is attributed to her most is this idea that why she was killing young women, and this is not historically confirmed in terms of motive, but the large spread folklore belief as to why she was killing young women Mm -hmm. was because she believed that drinking in and bathing in the blood of youth would allow her to maintain her own beauty and youth. And this is going to be something that a lot of different movies and TV and books are going to pick up on throughout the rest of the centuries. We even have like American Horror Story, I think in season three, I want to say, has Kathy Bates play as a Countess de Bathory-like figure. Oh. (laughs) But, and there's like, yeah, there's a bunch of different references to her throughout media. But this idea that if you bathe in the blood of young women to stay eternally youthful is going to really start with this figure. And that seems to be who Ruby here is embodying. And I think I've seen Refn mention before that she was a bit of an inspiration that we have Ruby as our Countess de Bathory figure, who is, we don't even know how old she could be, very old and very ancient, or maybe this is a new practice for her. I don't know. Mm. But she seems to be here bathing in the blood of beautiful youth and it's going to revitalize her a little bit right and she seems to have her henchmen Gigi and Sarah who we are going to learn seem to be a little bit newer at this or at least Gigi it seems like this is maybe her first time participating in the slaying and consumption of this youthful blood but we are going to see this blood revitalize their beauty and their careers as well. So it's really playing off of that vampire folk myth of this is an eternal fountain of youth to bathe in youthful blood. What also is going to be linked to the Countess is, so when she did get charged historically, instead of having to serve prison time, because that would be an embarrassment to her very politically well-off family, they were able to make a deal that instead she would remain under house arrest and they set her up in this beautiful estate where she spent the rest of her days. And that seems to be what's happening here with this house. So this house that she's awkwardly like, "Uh, yeah, I'm house sitting, even though she seems to have free reign and access to murder people in pools and take these (laughs) bloody baths and not think twice about it. My symbolic link here assumption is that we have this Countess de Bathory estate that is 
the house that she is in some ways tied to or the mm. this is the house that she primarily spends her time in but she also seems to have found ways to slip out and pick up new models and fresh meat in the town <laughs> and to me like that makes this movie make perfect sense right we just have this like countess de bathroy woman who preys on youth and beauty and serial kills them and stays eternally youthful cool vampire story makes a lot of sense now one thing I did want to, with this setup of Ruby in that bath and the two models in that shower together, bathing seemingly in Jesse's blood, made me think of was, I mentioned earlier that the tarot is, is a very big thing for Refin and for Jodorowsky, who he is very close with. Okay, so the Rider Waits deck depiction of the moon, the card shows a yellow moon in the sky like golden shards are around it. Two animals are below looking up at it, and next to them is a pond of some sort with a little red lobster that seems to be you know, crawling out of it. Now, that's the Rider Waits deck. The deck that Jodorowsky uses is the Marseille tarot deck. Now, if you notice, there are some differences there. The moon is now blue and red. Underneath it are two animals that seem to be lapping up red droplets coming off of the moon, and the crustacean is now no longer getting out of a natural body of water, but seems to be bathing in a pool underneath all of this. One character bathing, two characters lapping up the the showering action that's mm-hmm. coming from the moon. I, I don't know if I'm just grasping at straws here, but I couldn't help but notice that. No, I mean, it definitely has those vibes. And like we said, Refin is very big on Yodorovsky's symbolism. So, yeah, those are interesting changes. We will put a side-by-side comparison of this up on our Twitter and Insta for those of you who want to compare it side-by-side at Cinema of Cruelty. It will not be on our MySpace because MySpace can... Because fuck MySpace, apparently. Fuck MySpace. Good Lord. Sorry, MySpace. You served us well once upon a time. But... Actually, you never served me well. I never had the MySpace. Enough of Ruby in a bath. Let's get to Ruby topless. Yeah. Because next scene is... Is Ruby walking around topless, watering some flowers, and we find out Ruby has got some badass torso tats going on. Yeah, Reffin wanted her to have some kind of occult symbols to look a little witchy, even though the Mm -hmm. one that stands out most is this bow, so that's not super occultish, but Mm -hmm. whatever. She's going to hose down the pool, you know, clean up that blood that's left over from the slaying of Jesse. And then she's going to go and sunbathe in a shallow grave. You know, like vampires do. Yeah, as vampires do, because <laughs> vampire. <And laughs> initially, they were going to have something a little bit more explicit of her burying Jesse's body in a grave. And then Refn's like, nah, we got to stay abstract, right? We have to keep it in that weird dreamlike space. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, what do vampires like to do? They like to hang out in graves and recharge and whatever. Mm-hmm. So she's going to do that by day. And then by night, she's going to have a ceremonial celebration of her witchy vampireness and narcissism. You remember how I said that there are two references to The Shining in this movie? Yes. You remember how on the beginning of The Shining that elevator door opens and blood <laughs> just pours out? I do. Yeah, I remember that too. So anyway, this scene. So she is going to be in front of this really great arch window and once again that huge artificial moon. So coming back to that moon tarot card because she is a child of the moon. She seems to be doing a little bit of yoga almost under this moon and praying to it. And then she's going to lie down on the ground in the slip of moonlight, get on her back, 
and part her legs into once again that triangle shape. And the camera is going to swing in and then push in on what is clearly a naked Jenna Malone, although very much in shadow. So we're really mm. just getting that moonlight through the V or the triangle of her legs. Apparently, Refn just pitched this to Jenna Malone. So once again, Jenna Malone seeming like kind of a cool, crazy chick. <laughs> he's like, what do you want to do? Let's do this he's shit. He's like, how about we just really push in on like the triangle of your vagina? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she was down. I don't know if she knew at the time that they were going to add all of this blood in post. But yeah, this blood, like the elevator doors in The Shining, is just going to start pouring out, mostly from, it looks like, under her back, more than from her vagina. But it is in this, like, pelvic area. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of blood. It is a lot of blood. It's like carrying amounts of blood. And... Going back to the tarot, one of the things that Jorowski writes about, he says, if the card the moon spoke, it would tell you, the more you enter me, the greater your attraction to me. I am a swamp of immeasurable wealth. I was an infinite concavity, an open mouth containing all the thirst of the world, a boundless vagina that has become total aspiration. And typical interpretations of this card, if it comes up on a reading, will be madness, sensuality, night terror, unlimited request, an ideal that one seeks to achieve, and I swear to God, this is in the book, energy <laughs> vampire. Fuck yeah. <laughs> because vampires. Because vampires, folks. Can't yeah, deny it any t- longer. There's some goddamn vampires in this movie. There's some goddamn vampires. I'm glad. Welcome. Welcome on board. <laughs> so there are two types of vampires traditionally in lore and both the practicing vampire community, the living vampire community, are that there are sanguine blood related vampires and psychic or energy vampires that like to drain life force from individuals, whether that life force be the blood or the energy. She seems to be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Like she's, a touch, a touch. Yeah, she's just a well-rounded vampire, woman <laughs> vampire. <laughs> now, Refn also mentions that he thinks of these two women, Gigi and Sarah, as Jenna Malone or Ruby's henchmen, that she's but. sort of the pinnacle of this practicing occultist witch vampire because mm-hmm. there seems to be a a fluid lucidness to which folk figure she fits into exactly as the Countess de Bathory is as well. And yeah, these two are going to be her little henchmen, her little minions that have gotten something out of this deal. So we're going to cut to the broad daylight again. Gigi and Sarah are on their way to a photo shoot. Once again, Sarah doesn't seem to be getting work these days. It's just mm-hmm. Gigi that's been booked. Yeah. Sarah's going to sit there and wait for Gigi to get her hair done alongside the other model that's been hired for this job, Annie. Annie. Fucking oh, Annie. Fucking Annie, man. And Annie is just going on to her hairdresser about, oh, I keep trying to tell my friend, you're 21. You're not going to get any modeling work now. You're washed up and over the hill. The hairdresser just like, yeah, girl. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Annie notices Sarah sitting off to the side. And says, hey, you ever had someone screw you out of a job? Yeah. Yeah. What did you do? I ate her. <laughs> You're like, whoa, okay. Outside, they're getting ready to do some photos, and we meet Jack from earlier. He's back, and we see his camera, and I just have to point this out because I'm a camera nerd. He's using a Leica Type 240 camera. And this is a camera used by someone who is more concerned with how they look than how the actual pictures are going to look. 
like a Type 240, just the body alone will cost you $7,000 when new. Add a lens onto that, and the lens, most lenses for Leica will cost anywhere from $2,000, $5,000, some of them $10,000. So this is camera gear that is stupid expensive. And you could easily get the same results, or close enough, with a camera that costs thousands of dollars less. So, yeah, Leica is definitely seen as a status symbol camera. That's hilarious because this camera actually is Refn's, and it's in the scene because they didn't have to pay to get another one. They I'm just used his camera. I'm not shocked that Nicholas Winding, Winding Refn owns a goddamn Leica. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently he does. Okay, but Jack is not happy with the scene that's before him, walks around and notices that Sarah is kind of just chilling inside the house, stares at her with that terrifying stare that he's been giving throughout the entire movie, and just says, what are you doing here? I'm waiting on a friend. I want to use you. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, great. Annie, you're fired! Like, well, good. Fuck Annie, you know. Because the thing is, is that suddenly, Sarah has it again. She didn't before, but now she has it, and she's looking a lot better. She's looking a lot more competent as she's sitting there on this white couch in this Malibu mansion. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, yeah, Gigi out on the shoot, she's looking into the pool because they're doing the shoot out by the pool. And so she's just staring into this pool. Jack's even going to mention, what's so interesting in the pool? Eyes up here. <laughs> but what's so interesting in the pool is the fact that she's remembering that she just killed and ate a bitch in the pool last night. And that's an uncomfortable sensation for her because apparently this is her first time. Mm -hmm. She starts to look a little ill. She starts to convulse a little bit. And she's going to run off, trot off in her high heels to the bathroom. Clunk, clunk, and clunk, she's clunk, moaning. Clunk, clunk, clunk. She's gagging. Sarah's going to go in to check on her, totally cool with her little sunglasses and her stone-cold expression. Abby Lee can just freeze when she wants to and just, like, still. It's, it's crazy. kind of creepy, yeah. <laughs> we watch Gigi just heave up an eyeball. Because? And it's going to Because plop. vampire. Because vampires. Yes. But also cannibal vampires. So... This carpet is this powdered blue, and she's going to vomit up this blue eyeball, but it's going to be surrounded by the blood and the <laughs> viscera that she also ate with this eyeball. And it is the coolest way to use an eyeball ever. Suddenly, I'm like, this should just, like, beard into, like, Unchien Andalou territory, right? Like, the, <laughs> the avant-gardeness of this eyeball that just gets vomited up onto this powder blue carpet and stares directly at the camera. And you're oh, like, oh, shit. God. So if there was any doubt about Sarah saying, I ate her, <laughs> this shit's literal. Like, yep. they consumed Jesse. The neon demon that she consumed, it's not sitting right with Gigi. Not it's just not really. taken to her body. Maybe this could possibly because her body has been so altered cosmetically over time. And... We're going to get that again with Gigi as she s expresses, as she's crying, I need to get her out of me. And she's going to take some scissors and just stab herself in the stomach and gut herself because this is the way that Gigi fixes her problems is with scalpels and scissors and by cutting into herself. Uh, 
this is her first go-to resort. And so she goes here again in her moment of desperation. So there's something, she's not strong enough. Her little container is not strong enough to hold the neon demon. So yeah, that triangle is not turned red. Like the neon demon has not fully found itself in her body. And mm. she never has fully gone to full neon demon territory because she's always remained super self-conscious. Yeah. So she's not actually full on narcissist. Sarah, on the other hand, Sarah's going to look at this with a snarl on her face. It's a great snarl. She's like, this bitch yeah. is worthless to me. She's weak. And she's going to look at this eye, the body of her dead friend who just couldn't quite hack it as a cannibal vampire. And she's going to bend down and pick up this eyeball, put it in her mouth, and swallow it whole. And she's drooling when she does this. I didn't catch that until I think the second or third time I was watching this. But yes, Sarah is drooling as she picks this eyeball up, puts it in, swallows whole, and even cries as she's doing it. Like happy tears. Yeah. Because she <laughs> A lot of emotions. wants that it factor. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing about cannibalism. <laughs> the thing? The one thing, the thing about cannibalism? Not just the one, but okay. a main one. Okay. Is that one of the core ideologies associated with both spiritual cannibalism and fetishistic cannibalism is this idea that through the consumption of another person, you will essentially take in their essence. So that's a founding doctrine of just historical practices of cannibalism and then also fetishistic designs that dream of being cannibalized or dream of cannibalizing another is this idea of the inseparability of the person from the body in some ways that if you take the pieces of them or their essence into you, that becomes a part of you. And that is what is happening here is that we have... Sarah consuming Jesse's it factor and regaining that it factor herself. So not only has she retained her youthfulness and her beauty through the vampire lore of bathing in that blood of the youth and drinking in the blood, through the physical flesh cannibalism, she also takes in the essence that is Jesse's neon demon, that it factor, and she is now the it one. And so... We have gone from having Jesse be our main focus until the turn of the third act, where suddenly it seems to be Ruby who's going to take center stage as our principal character for the rest of the film. But no, then we tap her out in the moon <laughs> menstruation scene. She had scene. the most metal period ever. She's done. She's good. Yeah, and suddenly now it's Sarah, right, who is the main focus of our camera lens. And she's actually going to end the movie because we're going to take Abby Lee out to the desert or Sarah out to the desert to film through the credits yeah. as she's just walking into this setting sun or rising sun. It's some sort of golden hour in the desert. Yeah. And Refin's comment is going to be, yeah, I just took her out to the desert to film like a perfume commercial because at this point, this movie has become its own brand, right? This celebration of narcissism brand. We're just ending uh, on this high fashion outro. There had to be something odd about this because in a question, in a Q&A session, Natasha Breyer, the cinematographer, when she came up on stage, for some reason, the very first thing she said was, I did not film that desert thing at the end. 
Like, for some Weird. reason, she really wanted people to understand she did not film this ending sequence. So I don't know if there's something off about the look of this scene. I don't know, but... No, I think this is perfectly beautifully filmed yeah. as well, and it works. But yes, my understanding is Refn did think that the movie needed something a little extra tacked on, and he took Abby Lee out to the desert, and they shot the perfume commercial yeah. as a high-fashion yeah. end. I think it works really well. I absolutely love it. It's very... You can see it as very representational that now Sarah... She has the it factor now, and she just exists wherever she pleases. She can go out to the desert and just be out there, and nothing can touch her anymore. And she is free and will be as long as she wants to in this world of fashion. Because she's a badass bitch who is also... What is she? She's a vampire. Fuck yeah, she is. She's a vampire. (sighs) Fine. Because vampires are all about the consumption and feeding off of others to maintain that eternal youth, beauty, and vitality. And that is pretty much the fashion industry. We also have these themes of just competitiveness and the wild and, yeah, the idea that you consume and destroy your prey. So there's a lot of themes. Once again, Refn and his themes... Oh, and then to finish off the idea of the changing of the quote-unquote protagonists, the fact that now we're ending with Abby Lee when she was never, you know, she isn't even in most of the movie. Yeah. And that's really because ultimately what we have here is not a single girl that is our protagonist. The neon demon is our protagonist, Mm -hmm. right? Narcissism and vanity is the protagonist of this film. There's some sort of elated celebration that the neon demon wins in the narrative of this movie. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the audience is on board with the fact that the neon demon wins seems to be the dividing factor (laughs) on people who love this movie or not, because you either get this catharsis of like, fuck yeah, like narcissism prevails, (laughs) or you get this sense of, oh, this is so shallow, narcissism prevails. I think even if you hate narcissism or you don't believe that it's a good virtue, you have to accept this is the harsh reality of the world that these characters live in and that this neon demon is something that will haunt characters in for good or for bad. Yeah, there's a certain truth in it, even in this hyperbole fairy tale vampire space. And definitely the fact that this did not get more accolades is really disappointing to me. The fact that it was booed at Cannes to me is fascinating. And I did find some interview with Elle Fanning, and she says that she thought it was hilarious that it was being booed at Cannes because the Cannes Film Festival, that whole place looks like a scene out of the Neon Demon. So... What? What, you guys are upset we turned the mirror onto you? What the hell? I do think because this is a celebratory film about narcissism, that people have weird feelings about that in the way that they don't always have weird feelings about a film being a celebration of revenge Mm -hmm. or violence or counterculturalism or, yeah. We have... These different things like revenge was a little bit of a push for his audience with Only God Forgives, right? People had mixed receptions Mm, to the feeling that that gave them, this celebration of that sort of hyperviolence. But then we have things like John Wick that are also this celebration of revenge and violence. And that has its downside. But on the flip side, Mm. there's something thrilling in that. And so this is the John Wick of narcissism almost. It wants 
narcissism to be its protagonist. And that's hard for a lot of people in certain cultures that have been told that narcissism is a very bad thing. I was thinking about it, and there's a certain celebration in vice in cinema in general. We have movies like Wall Street that celebrate greed, Mm. right? Or The Wolf of Wall Street, which also kind of celebrates greed. And The Big Lebowski is really up on celebrating (laughs) sloth of a certain fashion. The dude abides. The dude abides. Yeah, and these are movies that have a certain celebratory fan base around them. So this film kind of questions, like, well, why not narcissism? Yeah. Right? Why not have those movies Mm -hmm. that in a certain celebratory way, like, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily want to live your life in this space. Like, in reality, Big Lebowski, like, the dude, not that great of a functional member of society. (laughs) But there's something cathartic and fun about watching him do his slothful, lazy thing. He's out there taking her easy for the rest of us sinners, as the narrator tells us at the very end. Yeah, and there's something really fun for the people who love this movie, myself included, about just celebrating the concept of narcissism in that interesting tongue-in-cheek way. Other, like, closing things with this movie is that we do get a for live that comes up on the screen, (laughs) which is hilarious to me. That is Refn's wife, and she was the inspiration for this film, Mm -hmm. apparently. His quote was, I woke up one morning and realized I hadn't been born beautiful, but she had, so I made a horror movie about it. Final closing quote here, and we'll get into our top five, is for Refn, he had this comment on art and that it was art is very indulgent the more indulgent it is the more interesting it becomes and that he loves the art of beauty and he loves the idea of viciousness competitiveness bitchiness and meanness and yet all these things are so gloriously beautiful (laughs) right like (laughs) that we have these things that are seen as these detrimental ways for women to be and yet there's something really baller about those things at the same time so yeah this is a very complicated movie in that it does not critique necessarily it celebrates and that's a hard thing for people but it celebrates it with such a fun stylistic glee that, yeah, everyone should just get on board. Everyone should just let that happen. Just celebrate the neon demon every now and it again. It is what it is. Just embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think that this movie just totally makes sense. It makes yeah. a fluid amount of sense. So, <laughs> I don't know. Top five. Top five. My honorable mention goes to Cody Renee Cameron. Sure. <laughs> Cody Renee Cameron played the young corpse that Jenna Malone gets on top of in the corpse fucking scene. I read a little bit about how when Jenna Malone was just going for it in this scene, at one point Refn says, hey, can you spit in her mouth? And she says, yeah, I can totally spit in her mouth. But, you know, I don't think that's what Cody signed up for. She probably <laughs> didn't know someone was going to spit in her mouth that day. And she went for it, too. That takes some cooperation between those two. So, good job, Cody Renee Cameron. My number five is Elle Fanning for taking this role. This isn't the typical role for her, as near as I can tell. I'm really not familiar with too much of her other stuff, but you really do get the feeling this is, like, offbeat for her to be doing. And she fully embraced it and wanted to bring a vision to life. And I applaud her for that. 
My honorable mention is going to go out to both production, the minimalism that went into this really adds something, especially to the high fashion feel, Mm -hmm. as well as Keanu Reeves, because he's fucking baller (laughs) in this. He's not in it enough, unfortunately, to rank in my top five. God, what a beautiful meat puppet that man is. every line that he had was super enjoyable (laughs) to watch, so thanks for just showing up and being in this movie for so long. Oh, but my... Yeah, your number five. Actual number five is... I'm going to call them the three. So Bella Heathcourt, um, or Heathcott Court. I don't know if there's R in it or not. Abby Lee and Jenna Malone. Mm. They were all really great. They all had very subtle things that they were doing with their facial expressions and body language. Particularly Jenna Malone was just Mm. really good in this, (laughs) the way that she could transform in a second flat like it was kind of amazing yeah yeah they all did great no that's appropriate that's my number four is bella abby and jenna they all had like their own different characters they were playing here different styles that they were doing really my favorite among them is bella heathcote but they they're all like the squad uh i know some people like interpreted them as the weird sisters from macbeth which being that there are some other shakespeare references in this movie you know like that kind of works but yeah, they're more energy vampires than anything else. So And actual blood vampires. Yeah. <laughs> they do drink some blood. Yeah, those. <laughs> but yes, love them for all the, the same reasons you had there. You're number four. Uh number four, Elle Fanning. All right. She did great in this movie. Keep it short. So yeah, she Boom. Did a, a wonderful job making that transition oh. from naive to super baller bitch. And to be only 16, that's a, quite a range. I am. I remain shocked. She was legit 16 when she made this movie. Props. My number three is Cliff Martinez, who did the music for the film. Composed so many wonderful, dreamy, synthetic scores for this. And that really, I mean, you know, music is half the movie. or Half of what you see is the songs or the music, whatever the hell the saying is. It sells it. I mean, this movie would be terrible without this glorious synth soundtrack. So thank you, Cliff Martinez, for taking me further into that dream of the demon. This might be a quick uphill climb. All right. My number three, Cliff Martinez. Hey, okay. The music in this is great. What up, Tangerine Dream? <laughs> There's a little bit of Vangelis in there, too. Yep. There's very minimal dialogue, so most of this movie is the music. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of Blade Runner a few times uh, while watching this. It did, does have that same quality to it, for real. Is there a movie that Tangerine Dream scored? They scored, like, 60 movies. Well, then <laughs> we need to do one of them. We need to do a... A ta- lot of movies. Need to do- My favorite one still is Risky Business. I love the soundtrack to Risky oh, Business. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Huh. All right. My number two is NWR Nicholas Winding Riffin. I mean, his just desire to bring such a uh, crazy story to life, a story that is born from just this simple idea. I'm not hot, but my wife is. What's it like being hot? I'm making a movie about that. Yeah, number two, Raffin, he is a certain artist. I like that (laughs) he does what he wants to do and he sticks by it and he doesn't answer to anybody else. And yet he still remains really worried about his budget and making it back for his investors. Mm -hmm. So he just keeps trying to make the best movies that he can while doing it his way. He has, and they're very unique films. Yes, he has stated that he makes every film as if it will be his last film. So he has to make sure it's good because it might be his last film. Yeah. So obviously number one. Number one is Natasha Breyer, the cinematographer. Fuck yeah, it is. 
for all the reasons, like I said, that we have been singing throughout all of this, the technical approaches that they took to this, the dreamlike quality the cinematography adds to everything here, the full saturation of so many beautiful lush colors in all of this that most modern cinema tries to shy away from here. She just says, no, fuck that saturation all the way up to a hundred percent. Okay. I actually make it like 92%. There we go. That's good. Yeah. Everything here is beautiful. And the fact that this was her first digital film is really impressive to me because it looks like a, a film by someone who really knows how a digital camera works and goddamn. She brought the thunder here in a big way. Yeah. The cinematography in this is just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. There's just nothing wrong with it. Not a damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, God. Jesus, we really agreed a lot. Uh, I hate it when we agree so much, but it is what it is here. Movies like this will do that. Yeah, well, I'll say for it us out here because we've been talking about this for a while, but trying to think of like what the lead in to this is London because like it's not a word we're very familiar with it was just the yeah. opposite of what was all happening here but we are like this movie just a bunch of narcissists yeah. so I guess we can try to take this as some sort of cautionary fable and put the narcissism on hold to give altruism a try <laughs> I don't think it's gonna go well though but still uh. let's go try some altruism I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!